Quentin is a very rare animal, yeah. Um, that what he does, he brings a reality to these people with a sense of humor. And that's very, it's very difficult to find a writer who can give you darkness and humor together. You know, you either get one or the other. There's very few writers in the world today who, who have that ability to give you both things at once. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Not a Bomb Podcast. This is a show where we revisit the movies that bombed in the theaters or the critics just tore apart when they came out. I'm one of your hosts, Troy. With me, as always, is Brad. Brad, this week is your pick. I know you've been super excited about this because we get to talk about one of your favorite filmmakers, right? We do. This film is written by my favorite director of all time, one Mr. Quentin Jerome Tarantino. It is 1993's True Romance, directed by not Ridley Scott, but Tony Scott. <laughs> wow. So this this is going to be a huge, epic episode. And for an episode like this, we had to bring in the big guns. So I'm super excited that Josh from the VHS Files podcast was so gracious to take a little break from his busy schedule and talk to us. How are you doing, Josh? I'm doing great, fellas. And I just want to say I want to, I want to thank you for the honor of being the first podcast that I get to talk about a Tarantino movie on. Oh, wow. It has not happened on my show. Uh, and I am a huge Tarantino fan and I think Brad is too. So this might be a fun episode. <laughs> yeah. So it, I, I've loved the movies you guys, uh, have covered so far this year. You, you guys have, uh, all of you have come back with a vengeance in my opinion. I mean, <laughs> just, just the last couple, you did Texas Chainsaw Massacre and alien two huge classic films. What Tarantino film do you, do you think you guys are going to tackle when it, when it comes time? I feel like when it comes time, the first one will probably be Pulp Fiction. <gasps> um, just oh, wow. because it's, it's one, it's one of it's one of the first movies that I identified as a Tarantino movie. And, you know, I've, I've, there's no bones about it. This movie is in my top three by, by all means. Um, so like, I don't know, man, like Tarantino's movies. That's when, that's when I found him was Pulp Fiction. So even though I saw natural born killers before Pulp Fiction and didn't know that was Tarantino. And looking back on it now, I don't know how I couldn't have figured it out because Tarantino is <laughs> all over Natural Born Killers. Yes. But um, so, well, it, it could be Natural Born Killers before Pulp Fiction. But if it's going to be a, a directed by Tarantino movie, it would be Pulp Fiction. Okay. Well, you and specifically the podcast, the VHS Files podcast, have been doing some just banger episodes but you've also got a lot of content up there for your YouTube channel. And one of the things that um, I, I, I always love this, when you kind of get an idea of fellow collectors and what their collection looks like and um, what they buy and, and you know, not necessarily unboxing videos, but kind of talking about special editions, going to a little bit of detail. You've got a few of those videos up there. And, and I thought it'd be interesting this week um, before we talk about true romances as collectors, I, I, we have a lot of stuff that comes through on any given week. And I'm, and I'm sure some of our listeners are going to think we're just crazy 
when we share what a week in the life of Brad, Troy, and Josh is like. But I'm super curious. Like, let's just pick this week, for example. So we're all movie collectors, and I think it's been pr- a pretty good week in terms of releases. And let's give some listeners just an idea of what a typical week is like um, in terms of going to the mailbox or, you know, the Amazon driver stopping by, you know, go from a Monday to today, um, share with us what you picked up this week. I'm going to start with you, Josh. Well, that's a loaded question for me. (laughs) <laughs> I, you know, I, I go through my ups and downs. Well, I will, I will not buy for a long time and then I'll, I'll just start buying like crazy again. Uh, that also depends on where the paychecks are at. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I got, I jumped on the scream factory train when it first started getting popular. Right. And, uh, I mean, I love the additions that they put out. So I'm constantly looking for new additions to my Screen Factory collection. And, uh, you know, even though we're the VHS files, I'm very much a current physical media collector. And uh, I don't know, man. I just – I love the act of buying movies. So it's 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 one of you're, the – You're in good company here. Don't worry, Josh. Yeah, this is not, a safe circle. Yeah, I was going to say. The, <laughs> yeah, it's one of the last things that, like, is, like, truly, like, something I can go out and hunt for, you know? And, uh, and and unfortunately, like I, I used to do that with music. I used to go to places just to spend time in the CD section, find albums, and you know I haven't jumped on the vinyl bandwagon, and I don't plan on it because I don't need to find another vice to spend <laughs> all my money on. Um, so I mean, I've I've been real big on the Vinegar Syndrome stuff that's been coming out lately. So I've bought a few things from their last couple of months. Drop Dead Fred uh, was one I've been holding off on buying for a long time, and I picked that up. Um, Picked up some Arrow editions. Uh, I'm loving Arrow right now. I'm a, mm-hmm. I'm a big collector of Arrow, Criterion, like all those special edition copies of stuff. And so that's really what I, where I've been at. I also just picked up. You might be able to see in my background the Toulon's case of all the Puppet Master movies. Okay, yeah, I bought the box set. I didn't do the whole case, but that's awesome. Yeah, Full Moon was having a like a half off sale, and I was like, well, if I was ever going to get this damn thing, now's the right time. <laughs> So, but that's where I'm at. I mean, I just normally when I hear people talking about movies on podcasts or if I'm watching YouTube, YouTube channels where they're talking about what they're collecting, I usually am very influenced by that. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's kind of how I've gotten a few of my recent Argento movies, which I know that's probably a bad taste for Brad. <laughs> but yeah, I've picked up a couple of like, I got the deep red 4K box set yes. that came out and that's, yes. that's a monster collection, man. I've only just grazed what what all that thing has in it so um especially like now that what i'm doing podcast i love all the stuff that you can get with those editions with the behind the scenes and commentary tracks all the artwork so it just helps with you know helps with my addiction and it also helps with what i'm doing now with the podcasts it's funny how many great collections are out there to where you can get a 4K version of Blu-ray, another Blu-ray just filled to the rim with every special feature you can think of, mm-hmm. and even alternate cuts, and then turn around and they'll throw like the CD soundtrack in. So yep. it is, it, it, to me, it's the best time ever to be a movie collector, especially a cult movie collector. And well, I, gotta, I know just recently, I mean, I hate to interrupt yeah. you there, Troy, but like just recently the, that uh, Big Trouble in Little China set that Scream Factory put out with the with the the vinyl that came with it and yes i i jumped on that the minute they announced it because i'm such a big fan of that movie i love that they're doing things with the movies that i love and that's why i'm so drawn to it 
I agree. So I have to ask you, in terms of features, if you're looking at something, and I don't know what gets you jazzed about a release, is it the fact that it's in 4K? Is it the special features? Is it like a Dolby Atmos or DTSX soundtrack? I mean, what is it about a release that you get super excited for when you're kind of reading through the specifications? I, I won't even I won't even be ashamed to say I'm not a nerd in that respect. If the artwork gets me, everything else comes secondary. Oh, and so like a slipcover, a good slipcover artwork, or yes, like if you blow me away with slipcover art or like the Arrow editions that have the awesome uh, special edition art that come with them, that's usually what draws me right minus, in. Minus minus the Halloween ones, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? Those, those Halloween four Ks are terrible. Well, of course I bought them though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's usually what ropes me in. Now I love when I get uh, something loaded with special features that draw me in as well, like. Uh, one of my favorite ones in recent years is the the hollow uh, not Halloween um, the Twin Peaks the revival of Twin Peaks box set that came out oh yeah and I love anything that you're going to show me David Lynch working behind the scenes so I usually look for behind the scenes stuff like that but I don't really geek out about you know the the Dolby Atmos and all that stuff because I don't have a good system and I'm not really that knowledgeable about how all that works so the the all that stuff doesn't really get me. It's really just the art, the special features. And usually if there's like a, another cut of the movie, I definitely want to pick something like that. up. Cool. Yeah. I love that. I love any type of different version of a film, especially if it's a director's cut or um, just here's the producer's cut. Okay. Brad, just just, uh, just so you, I'm sorry. Just just, just so you can see like what the filmmaker's vision was. And if it like you, you brought up our alien episode that we just put out. I mean, that has a director's cut. We all watched it. And there's a scene in there that makes an impact, but it doesn't need to be in the movie. So while I like having that stuff there, sometimes I love longer cuts of movies. And sometimes I'm like, eh, I can see why this got cut down, you know, but yeah, I'll stop talking about that now. No. You, and I agree with you hundred percent that you made a comment uh, on the podcast about how great the 4k looks of alien Yes. You are not kidding. That is one of the best 4Ks that have been released. Uh, it it's is beautiful. Crispy. It looks like that movie was filmed yesterday. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. shot on film and it's practical and all that yeah. stuff stands up amazingly. I, that episode, if anybody goes to listen to it, it's just going to be two hours of us gushing of how great a movie <laughs> Alien it's is. Fun, so, it's fun, yeah, man. That's what I want sometimes. I want, I want to hear people enjoy films because they're enjoyable. I know that sounds stupid, but... Like it's Although, okay to like a movie and to love a movie. Right. Although the next movie we're going to be recording for is, is not going to be one of those. I think we're <laughs> going to tear this one apart. So I'll leave you in suspense on that one. Oh boy. Is a highlight is a highlighter. <laughs> no, no. It's actually a movie that I, I would much rather watch Highlander again than watch Ooh. this one again. Ooh. Oh, I can't okay. wait. All right, Brad, what, uh, what was this week like? So in the life oh, of gosh. Brad as a collector, it was a lot of Shaw brothers stuff because like we were talking about earlier, it's like the best time in the world to be a movie fan. Um, I grew up watching Kung Fu films and now I'm getting like 2k restorations of Shaw brothers films. So I got legendary weapons of China. Oh, that's a great, um, that's a great looking movie too. Right. Yes. Now. The flag of the flag of iron, which is probably a top five Shaw brother move for me. 88 um, films, man. Yeah. 88 films, um, has just been killing it. Um, and Disciples of Shaolin as well. So um, I got that. And then since I recently got a region free player, Troy, I 
got skinny dragon and oh skinny tiger and fat uh dragon Same uh, fatty home. dragon yep yep i got that for you uh eureka put that out um that's a that's a english um release so you have to have a reason free player to play that but it's well worth it. it's it's such a great movie you've been talking about that probably for 10 years with me and i yes pulled the trigger and finally and finally got it um and then I, I went ahead and got that uh, Blu-ray of House of Gucci because I know I'm going to watch it because I've seen all of Ridley Scott's films. I just didn't catch that one in the theater. I was sad that there wasn't a 4K. Um, it seems like it's just on Blu-ray, which is fine. What is um, going on with that here lately? I'm sorry to interrupt you, Brad, but like I'm I'm waiting for some of these releases. And I think Last Duel did it have 4K release? It did yes, have 4K. but it was like yeah. it was hard to find. Yeah, like, and like, it was really hard to find. There are some of these movies, the new movies that are coming out, and they're just doing blue Blu-ray releases, and it's driving me nuts. Well, and like, then you know, like I I know when House of Gucci. If I like House of Gucci, in two years when they release the 4K, is like, well, I guess I'm buying that again so it's yeah. it's just one of those things where it's like I'm, i know i'm double dipping as soon as the 4k comes out mm-hmm. um and then speaking of 4k re-releases i got the tinker taylor soldier spy re-release on 4k oh um did kino put that out is that who put it no out? it's just a regular schmegular release oh, i think okay. yeah um it's on 4k it looks gorgeous um gary oldman is in that which we'll talk about gary oldman a little bit later uh, but I, oh, you know, I, <laughs> uh, but I think, uh, like, I like Tinker Taylor a lot. I'm one of the people who were like, yeah, I think that movie's great. And people are like, it's super boring, but I'm like, well, yeah, but it's kind of what spying is. It's not James Bond. James Bond is not your typical spy. Spying is a boring job most of the time. So anyway, well, I, that was, that was kind of mine, my main ones this week. That, I did that, a lot of thrifting as well. Go ahead, Josh. That's sort of what you say about Tinker, uh, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy being boring. Um, did, have you have you guys ventured out and saw the Batman yet? Nope. I have not. Yeah. I, I wanted to, but my weekend was crazy. And to fit a three-hour film in there was going to be impossible. That, that's so. the problem. Like, if it were an hour and a half, I might have been able to squeeze it in. But I think that's going to be, like, a next Saturday because yeah. too many projects. Way too many. I uh just just to kind of go brief brief here. I I feel like some people, I feel like regular moviegoers, not idiots like us who just spend all your time talking and thinking about movies. I think regular casual moviegoers are probably not going to be happy about this Batman. And you know, I won't get into that discussion because it could turn into a long one. But uh, I loved it. But I I can see where some people are probably not going to like this this version. I'm excited so. to see it. I just three hours right now. <laughs> that's that's a lot of time commitment. Yeah, um, I, I got lucky. I found a showing that was starting at like two in the afternoon on a Saturday. So I was able to do that one because if I would have went to like eight o'clock show, I don't know if I could hang. <laughs> <with that. laughs> yeah, I don't Get know. If it's, I don't know if the theaters are, are the same way out with you guys. I mean, we saw Uncharted. It's 30 minutes of commercials, not just trailers, but 30 minutes of commercials before the film. So any time commitment now, it's, you know, something like Batman. It's like, okay, it's four hours. That's a four hour commitment and that's a half a day. So I got to really make sure nothing's going on. But it's it's absolutely worth the trip to the theater. So, oh, yeah, sell yourself short there. (laughs) I'll be there probably next Saturday. Um, All right, Troy, let's hear this haul because I know you're going to have just (laughs) Troy's always million picks. This is another thing I will say is ever since I've gone come on this show, I think that after the first time I ever recorded with you guys, we had a text thread from that point on, and we're constantly sharing the movies we're buying. 
And that has been one of the best things that's come out of me meeting you guys and being on the show <laughs> is how we're showing off the movies we're buying. But Troy, Troy buys some some shit that I would never even think of buying. <laughs> well, yeah. So this is a typical week. OK, so I'm just I'm just going to put that out there. This is a regular week of Troy. So it, it started out that I finally, I thought it was lost in the mail, but it finally showed up. Um, you were talking about Shout Factory. I love Shout Factory, and, and especially when they do these combination packets where they say, okay, we're, we're putting this new film out, and it comes with poster art, et cetera. The Big Trouble in Little China actually came with two posters. It was fantastic. Yep. I'm not exactly excited about the poster art for this release, uh, but I, I couldn't wait. I pre-ordered this the day it was announced. Um, and I picked up the 4K Ultra HD and Blu-ray of Alligator, the collector's edition. I got that myself. As well as Alligator 2, the mutilation. So I'm super excited about some crocodile um, monster terror in 4K. So um, our good friend Charlie introduced me to this. Uh, I've never seen the second one. I'd only just recently seen the first one and it blew my mind. You talked I remember, about. Oh. I remember seeing the first the first alligator movie as a small child. Oh, really? <laughs> and I and I don't think I ever saw it again after that. I think that movie left an impression on me as a child. That when I popped the the four K in when I got it the other day, I was like, "Oh yeah, it's this movie." Yeah, I remember now. Didn't go to a swimming pool for a while. (laughs) (laughs) So I was very happy to see that that came out because it it definitely (laughs) opened up some memories that I had lost for a little while. Uh, The next batch I was super excited for, um, probably one more than the other, but 88 films. If if you love Hong Kong cinema uh, or just action films in general from, you know, from the 80s or 90s, 88 Cinema has some amazing releases. They're just dipping their toes into the U.S. market, but the stuff they're putting out in the U.K., you need an all-region player because it's it's Region B, but it is fantastic, and their releases are second to none. I, I actually think they are putting the best stuff out there, not just in terms of the way the films look, but in content and the packaging, the whole nine yards. So I'm super excited that Jade Long's Black Cat got released. And so if you love Hong Kong action cinema, this is a remake of La Femme Nikita. And uh, it is it is an absolute, absolutely fantastic film. And I also picked up a copy of Robo Tricks, which is a Category 3 Hong Kong film. Again, it's a huge box set. But um, if you ever wanted to see like the Power Rangers mixed with the Terminator and RoboCop and um, probably a, a lot of nakedness, Robotrix <laughs> is right up your alley right there. So um, those were my two releases that I was super excited about for 88 Films. And like you said, Brad, Eureka is another one that they're putting a lot of stuff out. Between Eureka, 88 Films, and Arrow, this year alone is like the golden age of Hong Kong cinema home media releases. It's fantastic. Yeah. Category three for people who don't know in Troy, correct me if I'm wrong. is like, it's basically like rated R, right? Well, no, it's more, it, it is more NC 17 ish. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So th- think of it at, at that level. Um, I also picked up a copy of raging angels, which is a nineties, uh, action film. So in, in Hong Kong, they had this whole angel series with like moon Lee and Yukari Yoshima, stuff like that. And so, um, this one's kind of hard to find. And it's a, it's a, I think it's a, I, I honestly think it's an old may bootleg, um, release, but I'd been looking for this one cause it's super hard to find. Uh, I, I think you can get it on video CD or something on eBay, 
but um, somebody was selling the the DVD copy, so I, I grabbed that one. That's a straight up bootleg, Troy. That is bootleg <laughs> right there. Uh, I was super excited about this because I went down a rabbit hole um, thanks to our good friend Randy, who uh, I had asked about, hey, I'd heard about this film and these guys, the Barbarian Brothers, and so... I'm just I'm going through all the Barbarian Brother films. The next one on the list that I picked up was Double Trouble. Double Trouble. Yeah. So identical twin brothers on opposite sides of the law. One's a cop and the other's a criminal. So these these are bodybuilders that tried to start an action career in like the tried. 80s, Troy, early do 90s. not say tried. They did. They, they had did. Some yeah. Amazing movies. So this that is like 1991 that, goodness right here. That just sounds like Double Impact. The Jean Claude Van Damme. No, movie. no, no. It's it's a uh, Double Trouble. So, it's, it's different. They're actually really twins, though. They're so, twins, yeah. though. They're really twins. Yeah. Um, my favorite store to go to in Baltimore is Soundgarden. They have the greatest vinyl selection. Uh, I think it was rated like the number two vinyl store in the U.S. by Rolling Stones, but they have an amazing. Well, that's, so by definition, it's not the greatest. If it's ranked number two, Joey. Whoa, 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 that's Rolling Stone calls it number two. I call it number one. But they have I, we're talking the best um selection of blu-rays 4ks and they're cheap too yeah you're you were sending me pictures and the prices i was like wait a minute that's like cheaper than amazon that's not fair i will go in there and buy brand new 4ks like love and monsters was one that as soon as it came out i was able to pick up for ten dollars on 4k brand new so i bought a bunch of copies and was sending it out to people only reason I haven't bought that yet is because I don't want to pay $20 for it. Uh, next time I'm in there, I'll pick a copy up for you. I, I think they still have a couple at 10. Um, so this got released in December, but then there was a problem with the disc. And so the re-release and reissue from Kino just came out. So I had to pick up Jean-Claude Van Damme's Hard Target in 4K. Uh, super excited because this is um, the international cut. The only thing it's missing is a Dolby Atmos soundtrack. So th these are the type of 4Ks that get me um, kind of upset because it has all the special features. I'm sure it's going to look great. But if you're going to put that kind of time into it and remaster the picture, just remaster the sound and, and give me a Dolby Atmos or DTSX. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, lastly for this week, Brad, you're going to love this. So Synapse Films, they are another sort of boutique company, and they put some great stuff out, and they just finished releasing Dario Argento's Phenomena, and it is a glorious 4K Ultra HD box set with um, just tons of stuff. You get the 4K Blu-ray, and then um, another disc with the International and Creepers version. So this is another great example of you You pretty much get, I think, three cuts of the film in this one box of Argento's, uh, I'll call it a masterpiece. And the the extras on this thing are just ridiculous. Um, but yeah, if if you love Argento and you love Jennifer Connelly, you got to pick this one up. So this this is just a typical week. Like this is... This is the stuff that will show up at the door and everything from Hong Kong cinema to horror to Jean-Claude Van Damme and, and creature since, features. Since you brought up Phenomena, um, I have that. I'm waiting for that to come in because I do have the Arrow edition pre-ordered. I'm waiting for it to get to my door as we speak. Have, have you ever seen it before? I haven't. Oh, I'm I'm curious about your thoughts of it. <laughs> you want to ask me if I've seen it? Uh, you know what? You're just going to trash it, so I don't care. No. <laughs> <laughs> we went through a little bit of an internal battle there. We were trying to plan our schedule for the year, and I wanted to do August of Argento. Oh, oh yes. And, uh, I got some backlash for that one, and I think I've come around. I was like, okay, I, th I don't think I'll torture everybody for the whole month of August. Uh, 
but I'm, I'm anxious. I just watched deep red for the first time the other night and, uh, I'm anxious to watch more of his stuff. I know, I know I've heard Brad distaste for Argento. So (laughs) yeah, just know there's Uh, a point he falls off the radar and I don't know what happened, but man, when, when he's in his prime, it it's gorgeous. It's fantastic. Oh, and I forgot. I got these two this week. Trespass. Uh, shout shout factory shout, uh, shout select put trespass oh, great out. film walter okay. hill yeah. yes I, I missed this one when i was a kid so i haven't seen it that's why i picked it up and uh a similar sort of movie i think judgment night i never saw this one. Oh, no directed by predator 2 um steven summers yep another great film man judgment nights judgment Night's so judgment Night has a banger of a soundtrack it Boy, does have a great so soundtrack. good that movie had a reputation when I was a kid. I just never got around to seeing it. Like I, I remember wanting to see it really badly, but the opportunity never presented itself to me. Oh, you're, I, HBO ten o'clock. I remember seeing that thing like on a Saturday night. I was like, "Ooh, Judgment Night!" I'm eleven years old. Let's do this. <laughs> Saw it in the theaters. Loved it. Loved it. Um, well, let's talk about tonight's movie, 1993's True Romance. Brad, this was your pick. I know you've been dying to talk about Quentin Tarantino. This is unusual because most of Tarantino's films are really not considered bombs in any discussion if you're talking box office or even critically. No, I mean, even like we, you and I talked maybe one day, maybe doing Jackie Brown because Pulp Fiction was so big and the film that followed it up was Jackie Brown, a black exploitation sort of take. And it didn't do as well and it wasn't received as well. But even then you're like, no, it still made a ton of money and critics loved it. And yeah, it can't. Uh, So one of the things we had to do was look at the stuff that he wrote and he wrote uh, true romance um, and Tony Scott directed it. So you want to go through the financials on this one? This one surprised me because I do remember seeing it in the theater I do remember a lot of people in my friend circuit, even uh, I, w- I would have been in college at this time, everybody that was my age group who was excited about this type of film went to see it, and a lot of people liked it, but I was surprised, even to this day, because this is a film that shows up on a lot of lists in terms of 100 best films of you know whatever 90s era or crime films or something. This one gets a lot of love, and, and a lot of people regard it as one of Tony Scott's best films, but it didn't do so hot when it came out, right? No, no. So we're looking at a $12.5 million budget. I'm going to guess that's probably all on cast, yeah. <laughs> essentially. Uh, and then, so box office domestically makes uh, about $12 million. Um, internationally, it makes about eight hundred k for $12.8 million. So right at budgets. Um, so, you know, no wiggle room there for marketing or anything like that. Um, opening weekend for this movie, it makes $4 million. That's good enough for third place. Um, it is behind films like the fugitive and undercover blues, both pretty solid. So, yeah. Oh, I love both um, those films. Yeah. And, and, and here is my big surprise. Uh, Rotten tomatoes has, True crime or true romance at ninety three percent, and ninety three percent with the audience. So the critics and the audience are both at ninety three percent, both very high for the type of movie that this is. Um, um, let's see what else. Oh, True Romance was released September tenth of nineteen ninety three, and you could have seen the following movies in that month. Um, you could have seen Fortress. 
Oh, Christopher Lambert. Yeah. Saw that one in the theaters. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was coming. I've... <laughs> that that laugh. Here it comes. Uh, California. Oh, uh, Brad um, Pitt. Yeah. Yeah. Brad. So stay tuned for Brad Pitt. Uh, the Joy Luck Club. Good film. Yep. Yeah. Uh, the Real McCoy. Undercover Blues, like we said. Um, the Age of Innocence. Um, striking Distance. Bruce Willis. Days, yeah, yeah. Days and Confused. The Good Son. The Program. And A Bronx Tale. Oh, and I think the sequel to Warlock. Warlock the Armageddon. Okay. Hell yeah. That's a that's a pretty good month. I'd, I'd say September 93 wasn't too bad at all. It wasn't bad, yeah. I think at that time I would have been wanting to see The Good Son. I remember wanting to see The Good Son really badly because it was the kid from Home Alone as a bad kid. Yeah. <laughs> so, that movie made $44 million. I was going to say it was a hit, wasn't it? Yeah. Holly yeah. um, Culkin's actually trying to get back out there. He was he's he was in the last season of uh, American Horror Story, and I yeah. got to say, he, he was pretty damn good in it, too, so... I'd like to see him make a resurgence. Yeah, that movie saved. I think more people need to see that movie saved. That movie's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. I think, brought, I think we brought that movie up on one of our episodes recently. You did. You it's, did. And that's what made me think about it. Oh, man. That movie is so good. I don't think people talk about that movie enough. Well, anything else to share? Like your 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 Christian reviews or anything this week? Oh, I do have. Oh, this one. Movie Guide has a great review okay. of true romance i have to imagine this probably got a negative score but i couldn't even tell you my my guess is probably got a negative 10 it got um, a negative four which we oh. still don't know what the scale is so yeah, okay josh are you familiar with movie guides uh from listening to your predator 2 episode yes and i have to say i, I would be lying if i said the thought didn't cross my mind to steal this and use it on our show oh hey do, <laughs> it's do what fantastic you want. i think more people should consult movie guide uh, it seems like a good barometer of uh honestly how to view your honestly it's just a way for me to be like oh i if i was a little kid i would definitely see that movie yes like it just tells you all the good <laughs> stuff that's in it so <clears throat> this one comes with this disclaimer it says note the reviewer left the screening early due to high uh, obscene and violent content. The guy didn't even stay through the whole thing. Wow. So how all early? This, all of this took place in the first 75 minutes. This is a two hour movie. Okay. So wow. he missed the last 45 minutes. Okay. Um, so all of these are a little light because um, he has 136 obscenities, <laughs> 13 profanities, plus much crude language yeah. and numerous racial slurs. Yeah. It's Tarantino written movie. Of course, there's racial slurs. Intense violence in form of four bloody murders, which if he would have stayed, that would have been much higher. Uh, several malicious beatings, tortures, and a very large man violently beats a young woman. I think that's very mean to James Gandolfini. Come on. Very large man. He wasn't that large. Uh, expounding on his enjoyment afterwards. Prostitution, graphic fornication, uh, male and female nudity, alcohol use, drug use, uh, and drug selling. Murder justifies as right thing because the, the victim was a drug dealing pimp and murderer viewed as romantic by female lead. Sounds like a movie I want to see. Exactly. I think he <laughs> captured the entire essence of true romance, as a matter of fact. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this one is directed by Tony Scott. Are, are you guys Tony Scott fans in general? Josh, you got a favorite Tony Scott film? I would have to say Last Boy Scout is the one that I go to. Uh, wrong. No, it's Top Gun. 
Top Gun that's, is the that's best. That's the one I go to. That's the one no, no, I go no. to. Yeah, but you should be you going go, to Top Gun. You can, go, you can go to Top Gun all you want to. Okay. Oh, fine. I'm sticking with The Last Boy Scout. A little Shane Black there, written by Shane Black. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Brad? Oh, gosh. Top Gun, You're right? going to make fun of me. You're going to make fun of me. It better be Top Gun. Unstoppable. It, But that's not Top Gun. It's not because <laughs> it's unstoppable because it's a better film. Oh my! Shut your mouth, dude. I that like is the I most think un-American is thing I've ever heard. People sleep on people sleep on Unstoppable. It's it is so good. good. It is good. Well, uh, Tony started making commercials for his older brother, uh, Ridley Scott, for RSA, which stands for Ridley Scott Associates. If you go back to his filmography, kind of leading up to True Romance, I mean, he has made some pretty fun films and one masterpiece. Right. So he he started with The Hunger in 1983 which I think is a very interesting vampire film. And it it looks great, too. Uh, then he just knocked it out of the ballpark, probably peaked at this film, 1986's Top Gun, one of the greatest American films ever made, uh, starring Tom Cruise. <laughs> then... Uh, Umi oozing homoeroticism, just oozing it all over the place. Shut your mouth. Just <laughs> shut it right now. <laughs> Say no ill things towards Top Gun. It's fine. It's a fine movie. Uh, it's it's a perfect film. So, um, anyways, moving on. Then he goes to Beverly Hills Cop Two, which I you know I think it's a solid sequel. I think it's a lot of fun. Well, uh, Beverly Hills Cop Two is where you really start to see the Tony Scott sort of uh, look. Yes, to to his films, uh, which much like Michael Bay and some other filmmakers, like when you see like physically see a Tony Scott movie you're seeing a specific style on screen and the way it's shot and, and the way the things are framed. And this is where like I, I Beverly Hills cop two is where you see it begin. And I think it runs through most of the, the filmography after that. Absolutely. You get some softer uh, cinematography with a lot of reds, a lot of mm-hmm. yellows. Um, I think, I think it looks good. We'll talk about it, but yeah, Revenge 1990 with Kevin Costner, which I think is another underrated film. I think more people mm-hmm. should go back and watch that one. Uh, Days of Thunder, starring Tom Cruise as well. And, and you, you know, you said this, Josh, when you when you go back and look at the color palette of Beverly Hills Cop 2 and Days of Thunder, they're almost identical. I think they're gorgeous looking films. There's almost like a haze over his over his shots too. Yes. Like it's almost like his shots are com- are. are, are purposefully like out of focus sometimes like it's really it's a really cool sort of effect that he has i I agree and then the last boy scout 91 which is your favorite uh true romance in 93 and then he follows true romance with crimson tide so you know unstoppable comes later in his career but if you're talking about a director with just hit after hit and i would say all of these films leading up to true romance are just fantastic and again one is a masterpiece um i i think he's one of the best directors out there especially when you're talking about 80s or 90s cinema in general and and apparently you know apparently tarantino was a fan as well because i do remember reading i, I believe it was in one of the books i read about tarantino but he was really excited when he found out that tony scott was going to be directing to romance because he was a big fan of revenge yes yep. he was he was like that, that. That was the big thing I would tell all the people. They're like, the guy who directed Revenge is directing my movie. You know, like <laughs> he was really excited about that. And when, when I mean, Revenge is good. I have seen that. And but when he had like Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop two, like right there around the same time, it's like, no, you go to Revenge. Like you can tell. Like 
Tarantino has that artsy side to him, which is, I think, revenge is right there in Tarantino's what wheelhouse. I, I Has it got a lot of feet in it? Is that why he likes it? Is there a lot of feet? <laughs> a lot of Kevin Costner feet all over the Ooh, place. Yeah. yeah. Five minutes. Hey, man. Of Kevin feet, man. <laughs> well, speaking of Quentin Tarantino, he wrote the screenplay to this. We'll talk about the history and inception of this film when we talk about the production. But it's interesting. Tarantino um, started with Lovebirds and Bondage, a 1983 short is what he shot. Um, My Best Friend's Birthday in 87, which some of that film actually shows up in True Romance. Mm-hmm. And then he comes on with Reservoir Dogs in 92, wrote the screenplay for that. True Romance in 93, but we'll talk about that screenplay. It was actually written way before Reservoir Dogs. And then Pulp Fiction in 94. Now, I got to ask this question. Um, What is the best Quentin Tarantino film? And can we say worst? Does he have a worst film or or what is on the bottom? He has a a worst. So what is the best Quentin Tarantino film? What is his best or what is my favorite? Because it's too different. See, I I just recently formed an opinion here. So (laughs) I'm I'm anxious to see if Brad is on the same level as me. My favorite favorite is Pulp Fiction by far. Because it was the first and I've seen it a thousand times. And I know literally every beat of that movie. And now now I'll tell you what his best movie is. His best movie. Stay on three. Inglorious Bastards. Yes. Yes. I actually just watched Inglorious Bastards recently and I tweeted after it was over. I was like, while while Pulp Fiction is my favorite Tarantino movie, Inglorious Bastards is his best film. Mm -hmm. I would almost agree with you. I think Inglorious Bastards is his best film. My favorite film is Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown, yeah, I knew you're a Jackie Brown guy. I love Jackie Brown, and and depending on what day it is, there are, there are <laughs> days like after I watch Jackie Brown, I will immediately go, okay, never mind, that's his best film. It's my favorite film, and it's his best film. And then I watch Inglorious Bastards, and I go, well, okay, maybe maybe the, maybe that's his best film, but I still love Jackie Brown. So I I agree with you. Inglorious Bastards, I think is a masterpiece of filmmaking. I mean, we could sit here and talk for hours, not just on, you know, it's very much on the level of like Casablanca, like Casablanca is a master is a masterpiece, but it's nowhere near like my favorite movie or, or anything like that. But I can absolutely see what is so great about that film. And that's how I feel about Inglorious Bastards. Like it's not something that like I gravitate to all the time, but every time I watch that movie, I'm reassured like this is the best thing he's done in his career so far. Oh, I, I agree. All right, Brad, what is what is the worst Tarantino film? The Hateful Eight. Oh, boy. OK. Yes. All right. Now, I, I do like Hateful Eight. I like it. I don't love it like everything else. Like when I go back and watch Kill Bill, I'm like, holy shit, like this movie is perfect. When I go back, even when I watch Death Proof, I'm like man, this thing's got a lot going on. I watched Hateful Eight and I've tried. I think I've watched Hateful Eight like five or six times. And I keep thinking today is going to be the day where I love Hateful Eight. And it just, I just, I don't like the twist. I don't really like the characters that much. Um, It is nice. Like when it's, when it snows outside and it's like, oh, I want to watch Hateful Eight because it's snowing outside. And it's, you know, that movie has, has a perfect setting for that. But I just, I just can't get there. I can't get there with that movie. Well, I, you know, I've kind of, I've kind of, I think I've sort of identified what, how I feel about the hateful eight and it's, it's just Tarantino's version of the thing. Yeah. Yeah. And absolutely. 
the thing is a much better movie. So, (laughs) uh, but I, I think Brad and I talked about this when we were not recording at some point when I was on with you guys. And because we wouldn't have been talking about a Tarantino movie. (laughs) This is this one. Uh, but you know, I, I've, I've watched the hateful eight so many times though. Like I continue to rewatch it and it's, I think it's because I'm trying to, I'm trying to find out why I don't like it. Oh, but, I, I, I can tell you right. It's, it's bloated. It's boring. Uh, I think it has some nice visuals. It is a one room act stretched out into like a gazillion hours Mm-hmm. I don't think there are a couple of good performances, but if you're going to set everything in one room, you have to have amazing performances to stretch it out that long. And it does not have amazing performances. It right. is so plot heavy in the second half that it's ridiculous. I can't even if you if you never told me who the director was, I'd be like, I, I don't know. Is Joe Smith who just graduated, who saw a bunch of like you know westerns and maybe Tarantino films? That's Quentin Tarantino. There, there's no way that's Quentin Tarantino. I, I that back half, I don't know. I just I I think Tarantino was sitting in a room one day thinking he was the greatest writer director ever, and said, I'm I'm going to do this masterpiece. And maybe in his head it works, uh, well, but I think it's a bloated piece of crap. I've seen it once and I own it. And I want to go back and watch it. But when I start remembering my first reaction to it, I'm like, dude, I don't want to watch that again. I, I think this is around the time when Tarantino really started playing with wanting to be a novelist and writing a lot. Yeah. And he, I think he intention. I think his intentions for hateful eight was some sort of a stage play. Now you definitely would have had to have edited that down for a stage <laughs> performance. Uh, but you know, I can see that. Like, I could see a nice, like, you can cut a good hour out of that movie for sure. And if you give me a good solid two hours, I would still probably say it's his weakest movie, but it would probably be a lot more entertaining. It's it not interesting. I, you know, say what you will about Death Proof. At least Death Proof has an interesting concept and yeah. how it plays out. Now, maybe you don't like the narrative or maybe you don't like how it's drawn out. I, I still would say it, it has some pacing problems. Yeah, but it's still a really good film. The Hateful Eight, when you take away some of the monologues and everything else and what you've got, and you said it, Josh, I mean, it, it is a remake of The Thing, but it's a remake of a very uninteresting version of The Thing. You could take an hour of it and you go, well, that's still very uninteresting. And it, and it you have this plot twist that occurs that doesn't add anything to it at all. Hateful Eight was the first one. I was like, I bet if Sally was alive, it would have been a better movie. And I think we talked about that when we were talking about Tarantino last it's it's that's around the time he also lost his editor that he'd been working with for a yeah. long time. And you can really see like that kind of goes to show you that Tarantino's greatness doesn't always come just from Tarantino. Like it comes with the people he's working with sometimes too. Yep. I agree. I think you need, you need somebody to rein him in. Now, hateful eight gave me a bad taste in my mouth of Quentin Tarantino to where when once upon a time in Hollywood was coming out, I got to tell you, I was not excited to see it because, you know, hateful eight scarred me a little bit. Now I was going to go see it and I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's a Quentin Tarantino film. I'll go watch it but I was not going to be there on opening night. Like I was not rushing out there to see it the way that I was for hateful eight because of his filmography up to then. Um, I I kind of thought his career jumped the shark after hateful eight. So I, I I like once upon a time in Hollywood, uh, although I haven't watched it as many times as I've watched hateful eight. Um, 
but I think it's because I don't have to keep trying to f- figure out what I don't like about <laughs> Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like, I, I get that movie. I think I don't think it's a perfect movie by any means, uh, but it's definitely a lot more entertaining than The Hateful Eight was. Yeah, I agree. Uh, let's talk oh, about hanging out, hanging out with Rick and Cliff in that movie is like the best thing. Oh, it is. Just, yeah. It's, yeah. It's a hangout movie. It's so and, good. And when he's actually like going, when he's on the far or the, the Manson family hangout place or whatever, that scene with Brad Pitt, that scene is so tense, man. And it's one reason that movie kind of went down a little bit for me is because I don't feel like that scene paid off very well. I think they built up to something and it was kind of a letdown, but that scene is a, is a fucking masterclass of building tension. Absolutely. I think, I think it has a couple of those moments, but I agree with Brad. Once upon a time in Hollywood is a perfect, uh, slice of life between two guys, friendship over this backdrop of Hollywood with its interesting stories. Uh, I, I'm curious about rewatching it again, He's he's one of those that I will rewatch rewatch his early stuff um, on a regular basis. I, I think Hateful Eight. I don't. I'll probably go back and revisit it just to see if do I really hate it or is it going to go into the light category? Once time upon a time um, in Hollywood, I, I really enjoy it, but I, I will say I have to be in the mood for it. Yeah, it's not something you just throw on. Let's talk about cinematographer Jeffrey Kimball. So we talk about the look of this film. I mean, he contributes to that. And when you look at the filmography kind of leading up to True Romance, you can kind of see that, you know, Ridley Scott liked him too. So he filmed uh, Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop 2, Revenge, Jacob's Ladder, which doesn't surprise me when you think about the look of Jacob's Ladder. Uh, Curly Sue in 91, then he did True Romance. And I think this is interesting. He did The Specialist in 1994, the Stallone, uh, Sharon Stone film, and Mission Impossible 2. So, you know, Tom Cruise, more Tom Cruise goodness there. You, you, you skipped Wild Things. Why'd you skip Wild Things? Uh, he did do Wild Things, <laughs> which is getting a 4K special edition, speaking yes, of it is. Arrow. <laughs> uh, and I, I thought it was interesting, too. He did a film, and I know we're going to talk about this because it did bomb, and it'll be our chance to get John Woo on, but he also was a cinematographer for Wind Talkers from 2002. So that'll be on the show eventually. Yes. Uh, music by Hans Zimmer. I love Hans Zimmer. I just totally forgot how many times he had been nominated for an Academy Award. Okay. It's like 137 times. It's almost like so much. Almost. Yeah. L- listen to what he's been. A- so he just got nominated for Dune for 2022, which that mm-hmm. score is amazing, right? Yep. Dunkirk, Interstellar, Inception, Sherlock Holmes, Gladiator, The Prince of Egypt, The Thin Red Line, As Good As It Gets, The Preacher's Wife, Rain Man. Those are ones he was nominated for. He's only won once. Do you know the film? I feel like this was a question that I asked on our show one time, and now I'm embarrassed that I don't know. It's the Lion King, right? It's the Lion King. I Mm. totally Mm. forgot he did uh, the score for that. Yep. 1994, he was the winner for um, original score for the Lion King. Uh, Let's talk about the people in front of the camera. Oh, boy. This, what a list. Stacked, man. Stacked. Uh, we got to we got to start with Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette. You know, same question. What are your guys' thoughts on on Christian Slater as an actor? I I kind of thought for the longest time he sort of dropped off the radar, but then when you go back and look at his filmography, he's he has 136 acting credits, uh, and a, a lot of it's TV. Man. Yeah, 
He in the eighties and nineties, it was you were hard pressed to find a movie that didn't have Christian Slater in it somewhere, man. Like that dude was in everything. Mid eighties into early nineties, that is true. Uh I mean he did a lot of T V series. First film was Legend of Billy Jean in eighty five. Mm-hmm. Name of the Rose in eighty six. I love that movie. I yeah. love that movie. <laughs> Yeah, I think Heather's got him on the map in 1988 with Winona Ryder. And to your point, Josh, from then on, you know, Cuss, Untamed Heart, True Romance, Jimmy Hollywood, Interview. So 80s and 90s. The, wiz- the Wizard. The Wizard. Yeah, there you go. Gleaming the Cube. Have you guys seen Gleaming the Cube? Oh, Wait, yes. Long time yes. ago. Yeah. Yeah. Like that movie, I, that movie was on repeat in my house. Like that was the Christian Slater <laughs> that was always on in my house was that movie. Do you like him as an actor? That's like a neo, that's like a neo noir skateboard movie. Yeah, man. <laughs> Well, do you, do you like Christian you wanna, Slater as an actor? You want to get a kid interested in a noir movie, just give him a skateboard, skateboard. Yeah. and have him solve a mystery. I'm all in. <laughs> there you go. What do you think but of no, him I, as an actor? I, I I like Christian Slater a lot. Like He always personified the cool guy. And like that's the biggest thing about Heathers is he was the cool guy. You're so cool here. Like That's exactly how I felt about him when I saw him in movies, especially the early 80s stuff. But then, you know, he really started to show that he had acting chops. You know, it's not just like he was a dreamy actor that you're putting in these teen drama movies or whatever. You know, he, I think he's got a hell of a career. And even so, it's so much so as recently in the last decade, Mr. Robot. Like, I think Mr. Robot's one of the best TV shows to come out in the last decade. And he's amazing in that. Hmm. What about you, Brad? I, I like him a lot too. And, and like what Josh was saying, like, he's just a cool guy. And, and, he plays off of that, but, um, you know, pump up the volume is a great movie too. He's great in that. Um, yeah, man. Like, and he's kind of has like a real distinct voice. Like I think actors who have like that voice, um, really, you know, he helps you identify who they are. So, um, you can't always sleep on the way an actor sounds like he's got that cool voice too. There's so a great and there's a great soundbite that kind of lends to that. My wife and I were actually just talking about this with Christian Slater. It's, it's the inflection in his voice, the way he speaks about things, and it's like there's a soundbite in Heather's where he says, "You say tomato, I say tomato," and like that's that's exactly what it is about Christian Slater. Is he just says things in a different way? So, what film has Christian Slater not pulled his Christian Slater shtick? Well, that's, a, that's a hard question, honestly. There you go. I, I and and to me, that's his downfall. The dude has no range. I think what he did in Mr. Robot was pretty unique for him. He wasn't trying to pull off the cool guy persona, and he does really sort of take a back seat to the lead in that. But um, I, I can see where you're coming from. But I mean, I think where he is in the movies he's in. He fits perfectly. I mean, I, I I'm hard pressed to find a role where I don't think he was right for it. I'm sure I could probably find one if I dug hard enough. I, I agree. I, I I can't. I like Christian Slater. Like I don't I don't think he's terrible. It's just that when Christian Slater comes on the screen, it's like, oh, there's Christian Slater. I don't yeah. necessarily relate to him as a character the way that an actor uh, may be transformative in their performance. And then you just see that character versus the actor. Now there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, John Wayne is John Wayne in every film. It doesn't matter what his name is, but John Wayne pretty much plays John Wayne. Right? So though you do have Hollywood actors, it's perfectly fine. And in Christian Slater is never going to be like a Daniel day Lewis or something of that nature. So if you like Christian Slater, 
I think he's fine for what he does. But the problem I've always had is his range is a little bit limited and he ends up playing Christian Slater in most of his roles. He's always bringing that out. And dude, he's, he's fine. He, he makes a paycheck off that. That's awesome. I, I mean, mean, he has the, he's got the Michael J. Fox syndrome. I mean, you could say the same thing about Michael J. Fox. Absolutely. I, I, I would agree except for Michael J. Fox has casualties of war to fall back on. So you he at least has something within his filmography that you would go back and say Christian Slate. Now I haven't seen all these 136 acting credits. I haven't seen Mr. Robot. I know Christian Slater from the eighties and nineties, more all of those roles. And, um, that's what surprised me. Like after 95, 96, I'm like, Christian Slater was still acting. (laughs) I mean, I'd see him pop up in little bits, but, um, yeah, that's my take on him. He's 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 always serviceable, but I can't ever think of anything where he's just not Christian Slater. What about Patricia Arquette? Uh, I, I thought this was interesting. She came on the scene with A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Brad, I think that movie's been popping up quite a bit. If you go it back and been. look at all the people involved in that behind the scenes um, and in front of the camera, a lot of people that were involved in A Nightmare on Elm Street three have shown up um in the last you know 90 ish episodes of our show i i I figure there's something special about nightmare on elm street three it like produced a lot of talent yeah too bad it's not a bomb (laughs) so we can't really (laughs) talk about it uh you know outside of true romance um and maybe nightmare on elm street part three i i can't think i mean she's part of the arquette family i probably know um her sister and brother a little bit more. Her sister is definitely more prolific in film, I think, because Rosanna Arquette has a very distinct look to her. Yes. Whereas Patricia Arquette has a very, you know, normal everyday girl next door look. Uh, There's something about Rosanna Arquette's facial bone structure and whatnot. Like you, you instantly recognize her when you see her, you know what I mean? Yeah. No, she's still working. Uh, I guess his show Severance um, from this year. Um, she's in that. I mean, this film, we'll talk about the rest of the cast real quick or just mention them. But this film is kind of built around Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette. And so when we share our thoughts in the film, I'm sure we'll spend some time on that chemistry and their performances. But they are the two consistent players throughout the film. The rest, I mean, we are talking about a who's who. <laughs> of just powerhouse actors. We've got Dennis Hopper as uh, Clifford Worley. So that's um, Christian Slater's Cl- father, right? Yeah, Clarence's dad. Yep. Clarence's dad. We got Val Kilmer. Uh, he, he he plays Elvis in the film, but he's listed as mentor, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Gary Oldman as Drexel. Uh, he's in it for about 10 minutes, but oh my gosh, what a 10 minute. Um, yeah, he's got two scenes. Two scenes. Brad Pitt as Floyd, uh, Christopher Walken as Vincent Concati or Vince. Yeah. Vincino Concati Bronson Pinchot. Is that how you say his last name? Our, uh, our guy from perfect strangers. That's it. Perfect. Sure, yep. Yep. Samuel Jackson is in the film for like, I don't know, five one minutes. Scene. Yeah. Yeah. He's one, one scene. Michael mm-hmm. Rapaport, Dick Ritchie, right? Saul. Saul, Saul Rubinek, Rubinek yep. as Lee Donowitz, James Gandolfini. Okay. A. Okay. Let's, what? let's, we got to stop right here. Right. Right here. What? Okay. Talking about, are we stopping on Saul? Yes. Okay. Josh, do you know the connection to Inglorious Bastards with, with, with Lee Donowitz? Oh, Donnie Donowitz. Yeah. The bear Jew. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. That's they're interconnected and 
That's Tarantino connecting his universes, man. He's yep. like Stephen King with that shit. <laughs> there okay, you go. Proceed. Okay, Good I'm sorry. job, Josh. I'm proud of you. <laughs> a young James Gandolfini as Virgil. So this was uh, this was really his calling card. As a result of True Romance, people saw this film, and when he went to audition for Sopranos, he he landed the Sopranos, and a lot of people mm-hmm. are basically saying it's, it's because of True Romance, and 100 yeah, percent agree with that. Say you, you can't say you don't see Tony Soprano in that yeah. in that scene. Oh, in that's all I see, man. Uh, and the last two, I mean, there's there's a lot of people in here, but the last two, I, I would say, prominent names. We got Chris Penn as Detective Nikki Dimes, and Tom Sizemore as Detective Cody Nicholson. Uh, wow, what what a list! Now. All of these people are in it maybe for a max five, 10 minutes. Is that uh, fair yeah, to say? I mean, a lot of them are Chris Penn is at the very end. Him and Tom Sizemore come at the end. Uh, yeah, a lot of people. It's it's Christian Slater. It's uh, Patricia uh, Arquette. Patricia Arquette yeah. And that's basically the main two people that make up 85% of the screen time. It, yes, it's a road movie and it's five, 10 minutes here and they're interacting with just sort of a who's who of Hollywood in, in the 90s, right? And you would think with a cast that big, they would have trouble finding them all something to do. But even the small amount of screen time all these actors get, I think every single bit of it is used so well. Enough that every character makes an impression on you. Like, even the smallest role, like Brad Pitt as Floyd, like <laughs> he's only in the movie for a total of probably five minutes, but you will remember his performance in this movie. And that's that's the case with everybody you just mentioned. Did you read that like Pink Floyd? Well, in the Days and Fuse, they call him, you know, Floyd is is basically kind of based on the Floyd character in this movie. I thought that kind of interesting. I don't know if I I mean, he's a stoner. Yes, but that's kind of where they get the name. So it's like, eh. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's funny that Brad Pitt was doing this film and then also California at the same time. Yeah. And and mm-hmm. Cal, if if you've never if you if you are a Brad Pitt fan uh, and you haven't seen California, you have to see California. That that is just a must, right? Juliet Lewis is in that too, right? Yes, and David Duchovny. Yes. And I just to go on a little tangent here, Juliet Lewis has come back in a big way with the show Yellow Jackets. I don't know if you guys have watched that. Oh gosh, yes, yes. Oh man, Juliet Lewis is amazing in that show. I, I I've never seen her as good as she is in Yellow Jackets. So, okay. If you haven't watched Yellow Jackets, everybody Yellow. keeps talking about it, man. I'm just going to add it to the list. I mean, it's funny after. It, we're going back and watching the Sopranos. So we're in the middle of like season one. And then we watch true romance and we're like, Hey, I totally forgot he was in that. So Mm -hmm. a little, little tidbit of information about production and development. So the Genesis of the film began as a 50 page script by Roger Avery titled the open road. So he was having some problems finishing it. And he asked his friend and fellow video archives clerk, Quentin Tarantino to give it a shot and write some additional content for it. Seven weeks later, Tarantino comes back and he hands, you know, um, Roger 500 page script. Okay. So it went from 50 to 500 pages. And what ended up happening was this 500 page script is really a combination of true romance and natural born killers. So it was one film and you can go back and read all about this, but basically natural born killers and and true romance are kind of um, talking about the two characters and and the film is kind of merged together in the same script as, as you know the same story. Now they ended up splitting it up and selling them as two different screenplays. And what happened is 
Tony Scott and Quinn Tarantino had met. So Tarantino was working for a company doing some rewrites. Uh, the, the company he's working for introduced him to Tony Scott. They hit it off. They're talking about films. Hey, I love revenge. Da, 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 da. And Tony Scott actually got to read Reservoir Dogs. So Tarantino shows him the script and says, hey, here's something I'm working on. And Tony Scott goes, man, I, I want to do this movie right now. Like I will, I will pay you and I will direct this. Tarantino says, nope, he wanted to direct it himself. And so he gave Tony Scott open road or really these two scripts and said, hey, I've got this one for true romance and one for natural born killers. So they kind of split it up. Which one do you want to do? And Tony Scott says, well, I, I want to do true romance. One other thing is this movie was heavily censored in the UK. Okay. The majority of the confrontation between Alabama and Virgil, so Patricia Arquette, James Gandolfini in the hotel, it was cut as well as a lot of Brad Pitt's drug use. There was also an alternate ending where Detective Nikki Dimes was shot um, by, not by Alabama, that's how it happens in the theatrical cut, right? But instead, the detective was shot by Toothpick Vic, one of the mafia hitmen instead. So production was pretty easy on this. Apparently Tarantino didn't visit it too often. Nope. There is a great Arrow release, uh, special edition 4K, I will tell you, it is not the definitive release, however. Um, this is one of those films that if you are a true romance fan and you want everything, you're probably going to have to go back and find a Warner Brothers two-disc special edition on DVD. Um, plus, the Arrow has the 4K. Some of the commentary stuff like that's ported over. There's a couple of new features with editors, etc. cetera. Uh, but to be a true romance completist, you're going to end up having to buy some older editions on top of the new Arrow stuff. Uh, did, did all of us watch the 4k print? Mm -hmm. Yep, I did. Okay, cool. Well, Brad, this is your movie. This was your pick. You've been dying to talk <laughs> Quentin Tarantino. So I'm, I'm sure you've seen this movie a gazillion times. I want to start with you. How was going and revisiting true romance again? Yeah, I know. I've, I've probably seen this movie six or seven times. It's not one that I've seen like other Tarantino stuff where it's, you know, in the hundreds, but, um, you know, I, I, I think it's, it, it holds up really well. Obviously the dialogue, the stuff is, is all there. Uh, but I think I got to give it to Tony Scott. Like this movie has a look to it and it, it really looks good. And it really has a phonetic pace to it. Like you said, it's a road movie, right? So we're kind of always on the go. Um, and it, you know, this movie was made in 1990, what, two, 1993, I'm sorry. And like, it looks like it could be now, like, like they would like film it now. And it's like a set, like a period piece or whatever, early nineties period piece. Like it would still kind of have this look to it. I was, I was kind of more of taken aback by that. Um, I think the 4k obviously helped that, but it, it, it looks so good. Um, the characters in this movie are memorable beyond belief like drexel is one of the coolest like weirdest things you'll ever see uh you know clarence is a cool character um alabama is a cool character like there's so many just characters upon characters um yeah i i just i i think this movie is wonderful but i will say there is a little musical piece that plays underneath a lot of scenes I cannot 
fucking stand it. It's like on the xylophone the or xylophone something. Xylophone music. I have a note. I said, how many fucking times is this music going to cue? Because it's, it so is it is the worst part of it's this. The worst. It's the worst. You it guys is, are not so a fan of the Badlands. With I know Spacek. it's from the Badlands, okay. but it's like it's it. Is that in this from? movie, it I mean, doesn't it's, work. It's calling it work. to Badlands. I know what it's calling to. It's okay. calling to. It sucks. Is what it's calling <laughs> to. It does not. It doesn't work here. I mean, I, I you say what you will about the music. It's it doesn't work for this movie, and that's the biggest problem I have. Is that music comes in and tender moments or or very dramatic moments, and it's like this music does not fit the mood that this scene is going for right now. Yeah, I, I think I would hold this movie in a much higher regard if it wasn't for those little music cues because they are really distracting. Like you'll have uh, Clarence in Alabama having like this really tender moment, and it's like, like what is going on? And it's so bad. So yeah, minus that, I love this movie. And, and look, I'm giving it a hard time because it's like the sore thumb to this movie, which it's almost like pretty much this perfect like romantic movie. Like to me, this is what I would watch for Valentine's day is true romance. Um, but okay, uh, that's, yeah, I, you know, I, you know. I don't know what that says about you, man. <laughs> hey man, I find killing pimps romantic uh, anyway. Um, but yeah, the music thing is, is to me, it's just a step too far, but um, yeah, I, I think it's all here. Um, I get at the very end, I get outshined by Soundgarden, So I'll, I will take that as well. So yeah, I, I, I really like this movie. It's got all the Tarantino-isms. I mean, we talk about Elvis. We talk about movies. We get Sonny Chiba, you know, jerk off for a little bit and all this stuff. So, yeah, it's got it all. Okay. I would venture to say that Clarence is Tarantino in this movie. Well, like, yeah, he says this is basically his most autobiographical yeah, movie. Yeah. And Clarence is basically him in a way. It's so. what he, and, it's and, what he and, wanted to be, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. And there's even a cut scene from this where uh, they're in the comic book store and he's showing her around and he shows her the Spider-Man number one. And then he shows her the Howling Commandos uh, and, and and Tarantino was a huge Howling Commandos fan. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just like a full minute of him explaining <laughs> the Howling Commandos to her. And I was like, this is just Tarantino just writing his thoughts down on the page. I mean, <laughs> I, I agree 100 percent. Uh, it, it is very much Tarantino probably daydreaming about, you know, hey, if I'm in a video store right now, but what if this happened and what if I were able to do this and how would I react? So I, I, I get that comment about it being like his most autobiographical. So, Josh, are, are you on the same level of love that Brad is with this film? Uh, do you watch it on a regular basis or? I'll, I'll be honest. No. Um, as much as I love Tarantino, this is not a movie I have revisited very many times. Uh, this watch was probably my third or fourth watch of this movie. Oh, okay. Um, but that being said, it's it's beyond me as to why I haven't seen it more times because it, like Brad said, this is very much a Tarantino movie. Um, even though he's not directing here, I think where something like this and Natural Born Killers differ is there was a lot that happened with Natural Born Killers that took a lot of Tarantino out of it. While you can still see it there, clear as day, it's not. It, it, it doesn't completely feel like a Tarantino movie. Like you can tell he wrote, but you can tell it's not his full vision. This movie comes across more like Tony Scott was respecting the script that he had. He was sticking to it for the most part. I think there are a couple of scenes here that maybe were like 
touched up and changed from what Tarantino wanted to do. Because- yeah. And, and of course his script, original script was very nonlinear. Like, you know, yeah. like in, yeah. And the, the ending is different. Yep. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I do really like this movie. I, I liked it. I, my love for it grew after watching it for this. And, you know, I, I still have problems with it, but it's, it would, it wouldn't be my top three Tarantino movies by any means. Okay. Uh, I, I think this movie has great characters. It has great scenes, great dialogue exchanges. I mean, the Tarantino isms are on full display here. It definitely has a great look. I mean, this is a gorgeous looking film. It looks great on 4k. I, I guess the question is, does it have a great story and does all that greatness gel into a good movie? I think this is a case where the movie is good, but the parts are better than the whole in my opinion. Um, and I, I think it comes from the fact that Tarantino's script doesn't necessarily work all the time with Tony Scott's presentation um, or vice versa. Tony Scott's presentation doesn't work with Tarantino's script. You know, there's flaws, I think, in in how they gel together on certain scenes. But when it does work, it's amazing. I mean, the case in point of it just being one of the, the best parts is the Dennis Hopper scene with Christopher Walken. I mean, probably the only time you're ever going to see dialogue so good and acting so good that it transcends the racism that's going on there. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, yes. Or, or even Clarence meeting Drexel is, is another case where it you've got Tony Scott's look and his directing and Tarantino's script. I mean, it's a perfect marriage, right? And when it doesn't work, though, for me, it, it just takes me out of the movie. And the prime example I can think of is the hotel scene between Alabama and and Virgil. So there's lots of tension and some effective brutality on display in the beginning. But at some point, the brutality just starts to overshadow everything. And it's at odds with the scene. And it goes on and on and on. I think that scene goes on for like five minutes too long. Yes, I, I agree. And I think Tony Scott's direction takes the scenario to an entirely different place. And I don't think it works in the context of how Tarantino staged the exchange and what was going on with those characters. Now, moments like that are few and far between, but when it happens, you really feel it. Uh, and, and I got to tell you, when I, when I walked away from this, uh, I, I got a chance to watch this with Cameron and Tabitha and Cameron and I spent a good 30 minutes, 45 minutes after the film, just talking about it. And talking about like different scenes and performances and, you know, what we thought and, and some questions he and I had asked each other, I, I wrote down because I, I wanted to ask you guys this. So one of the first things that popped up that Cameron kind of noticed and, and he was asking about my opinion on it. And I'm like, that's a that's a really good question is do the fantastic elements enhance the film or does it hurt it? And so a, a couple of examples like. Does Clarence talking to the ghost of Elvis Presley help or hinder the film? And and really, the ghost of Elvis sets everything in motion, right? It's it's him talking to the ghost of Elvis, and Elvis says, you should kill this guy. I mean, you really want this guy walking around. Him and Alabama could have lived happily ever after and just walked away. But it's Clarence talking with the ghost, and there you go. That That's your whole movie, right? And then the rest of the film has some very big coincidences. And the the other coincidences could fall into that fast, fantastic elements, right? Because a lot of perfectly timed 
events have to occur for everybody to be in the hotel room for the climax. And you've got to buy into that as well. So the, the first question I, I would have for both of you is, do those elements work or do they come off as, okay, that's a plot device and I don't know if I'm necessarily into it and I don't know what it tells me about the character. For me, it is really just Tarantino's thought process of how he lays out his stories because you will find that in every single Tarantino movie. Uh, this 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 one set of us of situation like this situation has to happen and these particular points have to happen in order for this to happen and it seems like that's something that goes on in all of his movies it's just like the end of inglorious bastards when the dynamite gets placed by hitler uh, and then everything goes down and then the film gets set on fire even though the the girl in the projection booth gets killed everything still goes off without a hitch like coincidences are always a part of his writing or like when they're down in the bar and the guy puts up the wrong shows the number 3 wrong and right. they stick him out that way yep so it, it's really i i kind of have to attribute that to that's just Tar- Tar- the way tarantino tells his stories happen with coincidences like that. It's it's just like the, the the bullets not hitting the guys in Pulp Fiction. It's like, how did that even happen? There is some, some, some form of fantastical to all of his stuff. And with this particular movie, yes, that's what sets it in motion. And it takes you on a fun ride. And as long as you're taking me on a fun ride, I, I can buy into the coincidences. Okay. You feel the same way, Brad? Yeah, the Elvis things never really bothered me because I always just thought that was like Clarence talking to himself as the way he wanted to be because, you know, he was such a big Elvis guy. He was like in his mind, seeing himself kind of as Elvis and talking himself into into doing this stuff. So it wasn't someone else telling him to do it. It was just his subconscious coming out and telling him to do it. I mean, um, he might I, as well be Jiminy Cricket, you know, like. Yeah, in a, in a way. Yeah, probably so, not as cool. <laughs> yeah, not as cool. Um, <laughs> and and the like, it, the confluence of events is like in in the in this movie. Like, yes, like it it all has to kind of play out to get to that standoff, that Mexican type standoff in at the end. But this is a movie, right? So well, I get like why you were talking about that and, and bringing it up and, and asking it. But at some point in time, it, it's a movie, and. It's, the climax of the movie has to come together and everyone has to be in the room at the end. Um, and in, yes, like Floyd has to, if maybe Floyd doesn't give them, gives them directions quicker, they get there earlier or something. Yes. All that stuff, you know, can play out differently, but it just, it never really bothered me because it just, I like that last little bit anyway. So I've, I've always forgiven like the, like the order of operations that it takes to get everyone in that room. But I can see why you would be like, oh, does that really work? But it's like, well, if yeah, if you look under the microscope, maybe it doesn't. But I've always given it a pass. Yeah, I think the style and presentation for the aspects that move the story along work for the most part. A great example is after Dennis Hopper character, you know, has this exchange with Christopher Walken. And Christopher Walken just kills him. And he's like, okay, you're going to go through and tear down everything to find out where Clarence is. And he, you know, opens the fridge and he's like, oh, he's right here. Right. They find, I, I like that aspect of it. Yeah. Um, but that feels very natural. Like back in the day you would put people, put yeah. stuff on your refrigerator. And, yeah. and I think 
70 percent i guess it comes down to the elvis presley ghost thing i want to look at it from the standpoint that clarence like what would make this interesting is that clarence psychologically is imbalanced and clarence is a murderer and he's looking at a reason to murder right hence the whole elvis presley thing of go murder this guy I, I do think there's a hint of that there, but I think it, and I buy it. Like I, I buy the presentation. I buy all well, he of it. shows that in the elevator, like he snaps in the elevator and you kind of see like, Oh, maybe Clarence isn't as of a nice guy as we think he is. I, I know. And I think that's the scene for me that pulls it in. Like without that elevator scene, I don't know if the Clarence character, the whole Elvis um, hallucination or whatever you want to call it, or the mentor might not work if Clarence didn't have those moments where he was a little bit psycho. So you've also got to look at the fact that, that, you know, true romance, this movie is an allegory for people who, who fall in dumb love and like love at first sight shit, like, like, like exactly what happens between Alabama and Clarence in the beginning of this movie. And I think this movie does a really good job of setting up almost a romantic comedy in the first 15 minutes. Like, it sort of evolves into this high octane, <laughs> like sort of drug fueled action movie at the end. But like, I think it does a great job of setting up this romance in the beginning and then how that romance evolves into getting them into more and more trouble. Well, yeah, you have to, you have to believe that the romance works. Cause then you wouldn't believe that like Clarence would go kill for this woman or he wouldn't do this or do that. So they have to get that romantic part. Correct. And you're right. They do. And if they don't, this movie fails. And I mean, look at look at the scenario this guy's in. Like this guy has a girl that is way out of his league <laughs> talking to him at a Sonny Chiba a marathon in a movie theater. Uh, I'm sure you can relate to that, Troy. <laughs> um, and then like taking her to a comic book store and her being just like awestruck by the fact that he knows the knowledge he knows about just useless information, just like Tarantino. Like this is this is Tarantino's like. I'm falling in love with a girl sort of scenario, but then it would be like, well, I have to keep this girl and I'm willing to go kill her drug, her pimp to go to keep this girl. You know, like I think it's really playing with how people kind of perceive romance in that sort of way. You know what I mean? Well, I, I, I say this, I think, I don't know. And I could be projecting a little bit. I think what this movie does a good job of is it does a good job of presenting a character who wants to live out the fantasies that he is um, just caught up in in his personal life. So he is looking for a reason to go be Sonny Chiba. He is Mm -hmm. looking for a reason to go do all of these things that he's reading in comic books or he's seeing in films and everything else. Yeah, And I, I like that aspect of it. Um, I, I wish they'd done a little bit more with it, but even then I'm, I'm sitting there thinking what else could they have done? And if they added more elements of that, would it have taken it away? But well, I, I, I like the I fact that it starts with them watching a Sonny Chiba film and he's explaining, well, Sonny Chiba is not exactly a good guy. And you get that exchange of him trying to explain really the morality of Sonny Chiba. And then you see him get an opportunity to go be Sonny Chiba and he takes it like he's been waiting for that. Yeah. I thought that was very smart. Um, So that leads me to another question. So Cameron and I debated this one for a while. Do 
and it, it was funny to uh, uh, proud dad moment. So Cameron being 16 starts picking up on all of this stuff too. So I, I was, I was really surprised on this. So do all the film references in the movie get in the way of this film creating its own identity? And I'm just going to, I'm just going to list a few of them that we talked about. So it is a direct reference to Badlands with Sissy Spacek, right? Because you get the voice uh, over narration as well as the music cues that are very similar to that film. You get Street Fighter playing at the movie theater. We get the the discussion of Sonny Chiba, right? You get Alabama watching uh, John Woo's A Better Tomorrow Part 2, which is a classic film. And it also kind of gives you a little bit of foreshadowing of what's coming towards the end of the film. You get Taxi Driver with the Mafia Soldier. Uh, so he even does a little quote, right? You get the Mac playing on Drexel's TV, which has its own connotation as well. You get references to Mad Max, The Deer Hunter, Apocalypse Now, Mr. Majestic, and you get a couple of Charles Bronson references as well. Isn't there a free? Is it someone watching Free Jack as well? Watching Free Jack a couple of times. Um, So I'm just curious when you see a film that is jam packed with all of these pop culture references. And we're not even talking about the music. This is just the film portion of it. Tarantino is very good about interjecting like um, maybe little heard or unknown classic music into his films. This has that a little bit here and there, but you, you even get all the Elvis movie references as well, right? Clarence's fascination with Elvis Presley, but do all those references getting the way of true romance being its own film or at some point do you go, yeah, I, I think I think this is a bit of a hodgepodge of all these things that Tarantino likes, right? Now, keep in mind, Reservoir Dogs, one of the controversies around Tarantino is that he plagiarized Reservoir Dogs from Chow Yun-Fat and Danny Lee's City on Fire. If you watch City on Fire and you watch Reservoir Dogs, you go, okay, you can make a case <laughs> that they're, they're pretty identical, um, now the presentation's different, but man, I, I mean, it's hard to, if Tarantino had said, oh, I've, I've never seen City on Fire, I'd say, ah, that's bullshit. <laughs> like, um, but Tarantino's known for putting a lot of pop culture references in his films. This one is super heavy with them. Do you think it gets in the way of creating its own identity? I don't, because like, <laughs> if I was Clarence and that's who I was and I loved to move, like, that's how I would talk. That's how I talk today. Like, I... I talk to people and I reference movies and, and, and music and all this stuff. Like that's just how I talk to people. So, you know, I, I think now in 2022, it wears on me a little bit more because everything is so referential, but back in 1993, it was a little bit more novel. Um, Tino Tarantino was doing it. Like Kevin Smith would come along and do it as well. Like it was more novel then. So I, I, I have a hard time kind of looking at it, now because it's like well everything's referential but back then it was like oh it was a it was a cool idea we're going to talk about the things we like in our movies we're going to talk about star wars and um do all this stuff in our movies because we that's what we like to do um so it doesn't bother me um yeah but it's if it comes out in 2022 i'm like yeah this, this is another movie that references other movies um it depends on what kind of a movie fan you were at the time that this was made too. Like 
I didn't know anything about Sonny Chiba movies when I saw this movie. I didn't know anything about Badlands. I like I would have never guessed the references in this watching it now as a film a film buff as a well, self-proclaimed film buff that I am. <laughs> Josh, you know, we can see your background. You're a yeah, I was going to say you're a film buff. You, you get to carry the card. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I can catch on to those references now, but not when I would have seen this originally. Um, but the thing is, the thing about Tarantino and this is where a lot of people like you know, you've got people who love him and who hate him, but like Tarantino is a film makes films for film nerds. Like he is a film nerd. He's making movies for people who love film just like he does. And he references that stuff because he loves it. Um, and then now you're seeing that trend come back now. Like I'm watching that show euphoria and there's a girl there who dresses up just like Alabama with the with the little tube top where they're at the when they're at the phone booth and it's the blue tube top and the cowgirl uh, skirt and stuff. There's a girl who dresses up like that and for Halloween in that show. So I'm starting to realize that the movies that they were referencing back when I was a kid, like Bonnie and Clyde, or or anything that was older than I am, now. I'm at the age where they're going to start referencing my movies in current films. And like, I think, I think, I think Brad has a good point. Like Tarantino and Kevin Smith sort of birthed that. And it's just kind of how filmmaking has evolved into self self-reference. I mean, we've, we see it now with the matrix, <laughs> whatever that new matrix is called. And the new scream movie is doing it now. Like everything is going to just start, regurgitating itself and you know that i think that's kind of where this started was just all this referential stuff that taren like that's tarantino that's why he loves movies so this is why this is i'm going to show you why i love these movies so much well i don't think you're a filmmaker who's under the age of 40 or 45 and you're not influenced by tarantino or kevin smith you know at some level that's because they were just they were the indie guys. They they came up, they made movies the way they wanted to. And, you know, like when we were growing up, we were obsessed with those because they were, they felt like you could do that. Like if you really wanted to, you can max out a bunch of credit cards and make, and make clerks. You could do that. Um, and they influenced a lot of people. And now we're kind of seeing that come back around where everyone grew up on Tarantino. Everyone grew up on Kevin Smith. And so now we're getting those sort of tropes, but we're getting it like, not like the first level we're getting at second and third level, like where it's not as, it's not as good. It's like a copy of a copy of a copy where at some point in time, it's like, eh, but here, like, like I said earlier, it's novel. It's novel at this point. Yeah. I'll say this. I, I'll use the city on fire thing. Cause that was a big controversy for him. And to be fair, Tarantino's never said that that was not a heavy influence on Reservoir Dogs. He's well, never backed away from it. Oh, absolutely. And and that's that that would be my point to it is if you if you sit down and watch City on Fire and you were to watch Reservoir Dogs, they are the same movie in terms of maybe story, but at no point does City on Fire have the dialogue or the exchanges that is in Reservoir Dogs. And if one thing that Tarantino has always been great at, it has been wearing like you said Josh is sort of film nerd on his just out in public on his sleeve everywhere. Right. He, the guy has seen a lot of movies. He worked in a video store. Uh, and if you listen to any podcast that he's on right now, I mean, he even talks about, Hey, I go back and watch. He, he bought a lot of the videos from the video store and laser disc and everything else and, and continues to watch it. What I like about this film 
is I think those references work for the character of Clarence. Uh, not so much Alabama, because I, I think this movie's a little bit more about Clarence than Alabama, because if you look at how things are playing out, I think subtly Tarantino specifically is saying, hey, I am influenced by the deer hunter. I am influenced by Mr. Majestic. I am influenced by Sonny Chiba. And I am acting all of those things out in the real world and look at all these consequences that are occurring as a, as a result of him participating in that. I think that's where the movie's a little bit smarter than I think most people you know grasp onto is that from a screenplay perspective, this is really about a guy who is trying to live out the things that he's watching or taking in from a media and culture perspective and then look at all the carnage and mayhem that occurs after that. So this is a good example where I think the references work in the context of the character because, I mean, he's, he's trying to be Elvis Presley, but he's also trying to be Charlie Bronson. He's trying to be Sonny Chu. He's trying to be all his heroes, right? He's emulating yeah. those in that pop culture. And for the purposes of this film, I think it works. Now, I think today's filmmakers who grew up on Tarantino and who grew up on films, et cetera, I think that is a problem. I think when you look at movies made in the 70s, people, directors, screenwriters, everything else, were telling much better stories. They were telling much more complicated stories. They were telling unique stories. They had unique visions because they weren't necessarily going and regurgitating the latest thing on Netflix or you know the theaters, et cetera. I, I do think we have a problem with a lot of young filmmakers trying to copy other films and being influenced by filmmakers versus trying to strike out on their own. I think that's why movies in the 70s were were so good is because they're being influenced by the political things that are going on in that decade and the art and everything else that is happening versus today's filmmakers are, well, let me show you that I have seen you know Tarantino's early work or I've seen you know, Akira Kurosawa, or I've seen all of these classics and I can replicate them to a certain degree. Uh, and, and to me, I'm like, Hey, I think you should stop watching movies and go discover something else and then come back and be a filmmaker. I think that's, what's missing from a lot of modern day filmmakers, but Tarantino and Kevin Smith and all those who grew up on it, it works for them bringing that in. But I think where Tarantino is the differentiator is he knows how to take that pop culture and he knows how to use it within the context of his story so it doesn't come off as like a, a screenwriter who's basically saying, hey, look how cool I am because I've seen all this stuff, right? Or right. you've never seen this film, but I have, and, and let me put it in here so now you can go look for it. That's not what he's doing here. I, I think it actually plays into the psyche of Clarence as a character. Well, that's why I think a lot of people who give Tarantino shit for ripping off movies are, are full of shit themselves. Because honestly, a lot of these guys that claim that he's ripping off these movies, like the reason he includes stuff like he does, the reason why Kill Bill is almost a fucking remake of Lady Snowblood is because that movie is amazing. And maybe he thinks more people should be watching movies like that. He's really just kind of giving free advertisement to these movies that he loves, saying, hey, if you like my movie, go back and watch these because they're good too. Like, and I, yeah, you know, yeah I, think, I, I think some people really jump on him for ripping shit off when I think he's really just kind of influenced by movies and he wants people to like the same shit he likes. But Kill Bill's a great example. Kill Bill. Uh, I think is way more than just a lady snow blood clone uh, or a Shaw brothers or anything else. I mean, he he's got Gordon Liu in there 
but for me, when Kill Bill one and two is viewed as one piece, it's a fantastic revenge story with this underlying mother daughter dynamic going on that right. you just don't see in films. And and to me, that's that's where again Tarantino is a differentiator. All of those pop culture references that he's pulling in, like Lady Snowblood, that's just on the surface. He's telling a really good story underneath that, you know, facade I mean, of just pop culture. Kill Bill is really him laying everything that he loves out on the line. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's kung fu movies, it's Charles Bronson movies, it's it's the Man with No Name movies, it's it's all of that shit in one, and that's why that movie is just, yeah. When you view it as a whole, like it's just Tarantino going, hey. You guys are missing all this shit, and I'm going to show you what I think good movies were. And like, like I, I can kind of see him just sort of like that was sort of his throwing his dick on the table sort of thing. Like, <laughs> hey, there are good movies that can influence people, and maybe you guys should check them out. Like, uh, that's that's what I see when I see Tarantino pulling influence from these movies. Like, I know you're not going to read a film that's full of subtitles, so like here right. is like essentially and then he course he makes inglorious bastards and it's 75 percent subtitled so whatever was but, it you know. was it bong joon ho when he won for parasite like when people start to get break this mold of like being able to stop reading the the three inches on the bottom of the screen yep. they'll, they'll see some good movies like yeah like some of the best movies i've ever seen i had to read subtitles of the whole thing yeah i i think tarantino and again i i would love to talk to him because i think most people yeah, <laughs> really but yeah. my question to him would be look here here's my vision of you uh, when you're sitting down you know on your computer how your notepad whatever you're doing i think a lot of people think tarantino of i like this film i like this film and take a little bit of this and and he's like in the kitchen just making you know his new concoction he's pulling from different things i think him as a storyteller he will sit down and go i want to tell this story and i want to tell the story about revenge and what happens this lady da 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 and then once he's done with the story framework then he'll go well i'm going to pull in this reference this reference i don't think he's looking at a film and saying i want to remake that i think at the end of the day he's trying to say something with each film and then he comes up with the story and the narrative and then pulls in all of the references or the actors or the look of something or the music as something to put on top of it. But its core, its skeleton in and of itself, is it has to start with a really good premise or a really good statement or idea. Because if they didn't, those movies would suck. And the fact that we're still talking about them today mean at its core, Pulp Fiction at its core is a very interesting story that happens to have a lot of references to French new wave cinema. Well, and, and, and I will, I will make this statement and I a hundred percent stand behind it. If Tarantino was an author, because I read once upon a time in Hollywood, the book, if he was an author only, he would be just as successful as an author author as he would be a director. Yeah, I agree. His writing of books is amazing. He is an amazing writer. First and foremost, he, he's, he's like, his dialogue is just conversations he wants to have with you. Like it's really just coming out of his head. Like this is the shit that interests me. And I think you should be interested in yeah, it. Too. What was like a virgin really about? <laughs> Let's yeah. have a conversation yeah. about it. So, I mean, and, and now, you know, and that's, what's been rough for me sometimes with his stuff is he's referencing things that I have no clue that he's referencing, you know, but it's still good. Like it's okay if you don't, because right. you'll get the next one or you'll get the next one. Um, but it's the, the dialogue still works like, yes, it, it works better if you know what he's talking about. But if you don't, it's still 
good and you'll get the next one. Right. Oh, I agree. But but to me, that's why I don't like the hateful eight is because I think at its core, it's not an interesting story. Like it, it that's the one that I can't gravitate to because I don't like what it what at you call it a thing remake. I go, yes, it is. But beyond that, I don't think it's a good story. So I don't think it's a good premise. And I don't think the statement that's being made there is very good at all. Well, I think it's too it's too similar to something he's done before with Reservoir Dogs or this or like, you know, <clears throat> there's always there is a there's a formula to a Tarantino story. Let's build my characters, let's have some interesting music, let's reference some pop culture, let's get ultra violent and let's have an ending Because it's so fun, Jan. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree. Um, well, let me ask you this question. This is another thing we debated. Should they have gone with the original ending? So in, in the script for Tarantino's script, Clarence dies and they actually shot that ending. But the way the story goes is Tony Scott basically said, I fell in love with these two characters. There was no way I'm going to kill them off. And so he doesn't want a Bonnie and Clyde type ending. Uh, he doesn't want to see Clarence die in Alabama kind of go off on her own. He really uh, appends a happy ending to this and, and deviates from the original script. So what do you guys think about it? I, I don't know if you watched the original ending they shot mm -hmm. versus when Tarantino has said that he he wanted he wanted and pushed for his original ending. But Tony convinced him, like, you've just taken us on a ride with these characters and it would be too heartbreaking to see them not live happily ever after. And while that is not Tarantino's style, I think he had respect for what Tony saw and was like, okay, let, let's go, let's do it your way. And I think it works for this movie. And honestly, there's, there's, there's a couple of things that would make, that would change this from a Tony Scott movie to a Tarantino movie. One would be the music. The music would be completely different if, if Tarantino would have directed this. And the other is I'm pretty sure the ending would have remained the same. It definitely um, wouldn't have ended on a beach. It definitely would not have ended on a beach. I can tell you that right now. Okay. Uh, it, it, it most likely would have ended with, her, you know, Alabama driving away heartbroken that she just lost this person she fell in love with. Um, but I think, I think ultimately that's what makes this movie more interesting for me is the fact that it's Tony Scott directing Tarantino's vision. And honestly, I would, I, I wouldn't mind seeing other people direct Tarantino's stuff. Like how did they view what Tarantino writes? I've always thought because he's always said, Hey, I'm only going to direct 10 films, but he's never said, I'm not going to write after that. So mm -hmm. I always thought, well, maybe there'll be directors that he wants where he will write the script and someone else will direct it. So we get more Tarantino stuff, but he doesn't direct it. I've always kind of thought maybe that's what he goes to next, but yeah. We'll but see. like I said, it's, it's kind of the same scenario with, you know, Oliver Stone and natural born killers. And then Tony Scott with this Oliver Stone took what he wanted from the script and then had, a, you know, changed it all around. And so much so that Tarantino wiped his hands of it. He was like, that's not my movie and I'm not going to associate with it. He's never done that with true romance. I think at its core, this is still a Tarantino story here. Okay. And Tony Scott, Tony Scott did a very good job with it. I say. And so you're you're a fan of the happy ending then. You you prefer that over the original sort of downer ending. Well, I, I've seen I've seen Tarantino's bleak endings, and I think it's actually a little bit of a breath of fresh air to see to see this couple that I fell in love on their road trip with them 
kind of have a happy ending. It's almost just kind of like the way Natural Born Killers ends, like Mickey and Mallory don't die at the end. And as much as they probably should have. Yeah, they should have. Yes. You, you know, like, so I, I, I am a fan of the, the happy ending here. Like, I, I've, I've seen enough unhappy endings that a happy ending every once in a while doesn't bother me. Okay. What about you, Brad? Yeah, I'm... Uh... I kind of waffle back and forth every now and then. Like I saw it this time and I'm like, yeah, the movie's called true romance. So I think the romance has to be true. So they have to get away. It makes sense for the film. Um, I don't know. I, I'm okay with like, I would have just preferred them get in the car and drive off. I, I don't really like the beach stuff where they're on the beach and the kid and you see him with the eye patch. Like I'm like, that's not where I want this movie to end. Like them getting in the car and driving away would be fine with me. I think it's the scene after that, where they're on the beach that, that I don't like. Okay. I, I can tell you, I, I like, I, I like the ending they had. I'm okay with the beach. I don't like the idea of Clarence dying and, and her running off the, what they shot for it and her narration, I actually think is terrible. When, when you watch that scene and her narrative, you're like, what is going, did he really write this or did somebody else write this? Cause it's the most, that narration and her closing comments are, if he really did write that, then okay, that is the worst thing he's ever <laughs> written. Um, but I just, it didn't, I, I totally buy Tony Scott's reasoning of you're along on this road movie with these two people and if this is a movie about Clarence's fantasy to be Sonny Chiba or to be Charlie Bronson and everything else, I think it should end in the same fashion that these movies that he's kind of basing his life off of, like an Elvis Presley movie. Elvis Presley didn't die in his films. Sonny Chiba didn't die in Street Fighter. So I kind of like this whole uh, premise of Clarence getting able to, you know, being able to live that out and then get that happy ending. I well, think it fits. If, if that works, then it, this movie doesn't take place in the Reservoir Dogs universe. So it just doesn't work because <laughs> Mr. White talks about his crime partner, Alabama, and how she was a good little thief, but it doesn't work because Clarence is still alive. So anyway. Okay. All right. I'm sorry. I, we didn't need to mess up the Tarantino verse. I know. Uh, let's talk about performances. So I think it really comes down to Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette in this film. I, I mean, what do you, what do you think about it? Does, does it work? Does the chemistry work? Are, are they good in this film? Are they okay? Yes. Like from minute one, I believe that these people were in love from the first time they saw each other. Like when she sits down next to him at the movie theater, I'm like, they want to start getting down to fucking right now. Like they just want to go. So. I mean, I completely buy that scene when she's out on the sign and he comes out and like, what's wrong? Like, I, in her performance, I completely buy that she has just fallen head over heels in love with this guy. She, he has treated her in some form or fashion that she has never been treated before. And it, it's, it's actually kind of cute to me, like that this sort of ha develops between them in this one romantic night. Like I have no problem believing that these two fall for each other as hard as they do. Yeah, I, th I think they're. I think they're good. I mean, I don't think Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette are amazing actors. I, I do think one of the problems that this film has is their chemistry works and their believable characters, uh, or, or they're believable as two people that fall in love. I get that, but it's Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette. 
I don't. Hasn't Patricia Arquette won an Oscar? Didn't she win an Oscar for Boyhood? Boyhood? I was yeah. going to say, was it yeah. Boyhood? I think. Uh, I think she. I think she's an okay actor. <laughs> I, I. She could win all the Academy Awards. That an Academy Award doesn't mean shit. <laughs> Honestly, think think about all the Academy Awards that we hand out, and then you go back and go. Uh, that Goodfellas well, didn't get I think best the, I, picture. I think there was a time when the Academy really had their heads up their ass. Like, I think, <laughs> and I think some of them still do, of course. But yeah. um, there, uh, yeah, there are some performances that I, I'm like, I think Sigourney Weaver should have won for Aliens, but that shit didn't happen. Like, <laughs> no, I agree. That, that, that's my problem. Is like, and and again, I'm not saying that she's a bad actress. I just think she's okay. I, I I'm not. Patricia Arquette is not somebody that I'm going, oh, that's a Patricia Arquette film. To be fair, she's amazing in Boyhood. Like, she's really good in Boyhood. She is good. Yeah, I I haven't seen it yet. (laughs) So, um, but I, for this film, she's okay. I I think the problem is Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette go and meet uh, Gary Oldman. They go and meet Dennis Hopper. They go and Christopher Walken and and Saul Rubinek, who's doing his, his best Joel Silver impersonation, right? One of the all thing, better characters, all better, like interesting, more interesting characters. They're interesting characters. They have better dialogue and they're more memorable in their five or 10 minutes than I think uh, Clarence and Alabama are. Uh, even James Gandolfini, where you go, oh, I, yeah, there's Tony Soprano, right? And Brad Pitt is the drug. They're, they're probably the second tier compared to like Hopper and Oldman and everybody else. But I mean, Saul Rubinek plays this coked out producer. And I think he's more interesting than Clarence and Alabama in his little bit. So that that's the only thing is I think the, the screenplay and everything that they gave to all the supporting characters along the road movie are really good. And I think it's, it does become a little bit of, okay, Clarence and Alabama, go meet this people, you know, go meet this person or into this situation. And the performances in that situation are just fantastic. And it's like, okay, then they go to this one and they do a good job of being a foil or participating in that scene, but they're not driving the scene the way that the supporting actors are. Well, isn't that like a a true road movie though? Like when you're traveling and you're going and you're seeing these other people, like usually the people you're going to see are more interesting than you are. Like it it depends. I, I don't know. I just, I just think that that's just like how it is. Like, I'm not an interesting person. So every time I go somewhere and I see people, it's like, Oh, you're more interesting than me. Let's have a conversation. I think it depends. Some road movies, you, you know, uh, take the hangover films, for example, you know, okay, here we go. Yeah. But (laughs) the characters and the exchanges as they go from scene to scene to scene, even when they meet Mike Tyson, like the first hangover film, their exchanges are the best part of that film, even outside of the scenarios they go into. So that's a case of a road film where the exchanges between, you know, the two, three, whoever's interacting in that scene is just as interesting as the craziness that's going on around them. And the performances are really good in that. Right. Whereas this one, I think Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette deliver good performances, but they're overshadowed a lot of times by the supporting cast versus sort of matching them in in terms of tenacity or even acting skill. Here's what I'll say. This is another classic case of someone directing Tarantino and Tarantino not directing himself. Um, If you watch most of his films, it is an ensemble cast that you are never 100% following one particular character. This movie, I think, because was not directed under Tarantino's eye, 
kind of has to fall into that trope of here are our main characters that we're going to follow throughout this movie. And they're going to enter introduce us to our crazy shit that's going to happen along the way. I think this movie you can really look at as just like Pulp Fiction, just like his other movies, a series of vignettes that has one thing connecting all of them. So ultimately, I think where that might suffer the most is the fact that you've got someone doing their vision of Tarantino's writing. Again, like that, that, that would be my take on it is, is like, I find them to be very interesting characters. Um, and if they had their own little segment within these vignettes of the shit that's happening, that's kind of how I'm following it. No. And you're probably right. That's probably it, Yeah. Especially because, like, the original was like a non-linear story, and mm-hmm. yeah, so yeah, I, I agree with that. And and like I said, we're just we're talking about I, what do you do when you when you're acting against Dennis Hopper when he's you know or Christopher Walken when I think they're delivering probably some of the best work of of their time in yeah. just you know the five minutes. So Christian Slater, Patricia Arquette didn't stand a chance. I, I'm sorry, Christian Slater didn't stand a chance against Gary Oldman. In that scene, <laughs> right. I mean, Gary Oldman so good. owns that scene, and even when Christian Slater gives his little speech about, "Well, that's all I'm going to give you," and I know what's on TV, and da, 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 and I don't give about this. At this point, you're like, "Yeah, could you point the camera back at Gary Oldman?" Because <laughs> Gary Oldman is super right. cool and interesting in this, and Christian Slater just gets dwarfed by that. Again, Christian Slater is serviceable; he's good. Patricia Arquette is good. But the one drawback I think to this film is they their chemistry is not so bright that it's going to match some of the people that they run into, um, especially with Walken, Hopper, Oldman, um, and some of the others. Now, you know Bronson, Pinoche, I, I, they outshine him like crazy. I, I think he's yeah. he's okay, but he's one of the weakest. Michael Rapaport, I don't I don't think is he gets on my nerves at some point. Um, He's okay, but you know, with with those actors, I think they are fine. But I'm telling you, I mean, when well, honestly, like uh, you don't get a whole lot of scenes with uh, with Clarence and Alabama together. They're not together a whole lot in this movie. Usually, one of them is involved in what's developing within the movie, and like where a lot of these performances shine is when you have Gandolfini. And Alabama in the hotel room. And while it is a very violent scene to watch, like that is very much Gandolfini and uh, Patricia Arquette scene. Yes. Um, same thing with uh, Saul Rubinek and everything that happens there. Like Christian Slater is involved in that. But the reason that scene stands out is because this dude's a freaking wacko. <laughs> like I, I definitely understand where you're coming from, Troy. But again, like I think it was just a service of like how the, how someone portrayed how those scenes were going to be shot or had to, had to be on, had to unfold. Right. No, I, I agree. I agree. Can we, can we hit the pause button real quick? Cause we, we've gone over it too many times. Gary Oldman is fucking amazing in this movie. <laughs> He's on screen for 10 minutes and it is amazing. It like might be one of the best performances I've ever seen in a movie period. Well, I wrote down what my wife said. She said, I'm trying to determine whether or not this performance is just amazing or if it's extremely racist. I, and <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, th- there's this scene, the scene with Clarence and Gary Oldman's Drexel character. And then there's, you know, the Dennis Hopper scene and Christopher Walken scene, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about after this, but um, it, 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 
everyone, like especially Gary Oldman, is chewing up the scenery like crazy. And the only thing I can imagine is, again, this is where I think like if Tarantino would have directed this movie, it would have been different is you've got this crazy loud ass techno music going on in the background, which I think is a stylistic choice that Tarantino would have never had. Like if this was a Tarantino movie, like the Temptations would have been playing in the background (laughs) or something like I'm surprised they actually had the Mac on TV when when they're referencing that. But uh, yeah, like but. Gary Oldman, uh, my, my note when he when this perform when this scene came on was. Gary fucking Oldman. Like this guy is otherworldly, man. Like, so you, you do touch on something. Uh, there is one scene that does pop out, uh, in this and a lot of people gravitate to it. And and it is the Christopher Walken Dennis Hopper exchange, which has some of the uh, most jaw dropping racial <laughs> slurs that go on within this exchange. Plus you get Gary Oldman who is a white guy who thinks he's black and um, just has all these mannerisms is dressing like that is talking like that, etc. And I think the racial slurs Tarantino has always come under fire from that. Right. And I think in 97, it was Spike Lee who questioned Tarantino's use of racial slurs in his film, you know, especially the N word. Right. And I don't know if you ever saw Tarantino's response to this. I, I, I want to read this and you, you guys tell me if you agree with Tarantino or if you think there is a point where he goes over the top. So this was Tarantino responding on the Charlie Rose show. He says, as a writer, I demand the right to write any character in the world that I want to write. I demand the right to be them. I demand the right to think them. And I demand the right to tell the truth as I see they are all right. And to say that I can't do that because I'm white, but the Hughes brothers can do that because they're black. That is racist. That is the heart of racism. All right. And I do not accept that. That is how a segment of the black community that lives in Compton, lives in Inglewood, where Jackie Brown takes place, that lives in Carson, that is how they talk. I'm telling the truth. It would not be questioned if I was black, and I resent the question because I'm white. I have the right to tell the truth. I do not have the right to lie. Brad, do you want to go first? I mean, like I'm always going to somewhat defend his choice for how he wants to write his dialogue. And I always kind of, kind of say like, if, if, if Samuel L. Jackson thought Quentin Tarantino was a raging racist, he wouldn't work with him all the time. Samuel L. Jackson is, you know, has worked with Tarantino. We'll continue to work with him. So and if, he defends he, him publicly yes, and all he the defends time. Them. Yes. So if, if he is okay with it, then I, you know, I'm like, you know what? He knows him. He knows what the intent is. I think it's always the intent, right? Um, the intent and the it, context. Yes. Yeah. And, and obviously in this scene, the use of those words is for that. Oh man, this just escalated to this whole other level. At first it seemed a little cordial. We were going to do some light torturing, but you know, nothing too crazy. And then it goes there and then it takes the scene. It, it really does. It takes that tension up so much more. And, and in this scene, it's effective. Like it, it gets, the point where you're like, Oh man, like, and even then I know it's coming and it's still like one of those things where it's like, Oh gosh. Like, so, you know, it works. Um, I hate to say that it does, but it, it, it works in these scenes. Oh, I, um, yeah, go ahead, Josh. It, here's my thing with Tarantino. And this is, it's a very touchy subject. 
But, you know, some of his most memorable scenes are ones that do use derogatory statements towards other people, other races. And I think the reason, like, I think the reason they work, especially coming from a white writer and a white director, is like you just said, like, I think the black community has connected with Tarantino on a level that they know he does not mean harm towards them. He is more, more or less shining a light on the reality that there are people in this world that think this way. Mm-hmm. And if I don't write about it, then, you know, I would be, it would be fake. Like, I think he feels like he would be being fake if he didn't really put the, the hard trashy part of people on screen. Like there, you know, people out there think the way that some of his characters are written. And I think he feels like he would be telling people a lie if he didn't write his characters the way he thinks they need to be written. I don't think he means anything ill towards any community with the way he writes. I just think he's trying to tell a story and the characters he uses are who they are, you know? And, and it, it, it would be hard. Like I can absolutely respect like the freedom to do, you know, like freedom of speech in, in that regard of like, I'm telling a story about how bad these white supremacist people are. And yes, they used this word a whole fucking lot. And this is why this is, this has been a problem in our society for years and years and years and years is because people won't change their way of thinking. You know, I mean, one of the funniest scenes he's ever written is in, in, Django Unchained with the the bags over their head. Yeah, one of the most racist scenes in <laughs> like film, but like it is so funny and it kind of plays it for funny because you're like, look, these guys think they're so supreme, they're white and they think they're so much, but they can't even figure out how to cut bags or holes in bags. Like that's how you know their supremacy goes, it, and it it kind of gives it context. You're like, yeah, these guys are morons. Like, why do they think they're better than Django? Cause they're white. Well, look, there's idiotic. Um, so you kind of, you think, and you think the scene here with Dennis Hopper and Kristen, uh, um, Christopher Walken is like, Oh, it's telling of Dennis Hopper's character. He's a racist. No, the entire point behind what he's doing is he knows the guy sitting across from him is going to, is going to react to what I'm about to say in a way that is going to provoke him. I think that scene is written and played so fucking sharply and it rides a line of being, you know, being offensive, but it serves a, it serves a point in the end. Like he knows exactly what he's doing and he has to come across this way for, to, to prove his point, you know? Yeah. It's if, if you're sitting across a, a person and you know, they're absolutely racist. Mm. What is the one thing that you can tell them that is going to send them over the edge? You tell them what Dennis Hopper tells them in the most brutal way possible. Absolutely. The slang and all. So it, it is, but again, I think the performances take it there. I think without Dennis Hopper and Christopher Walken, that could have been a very problematic scene. I think they carry it. Fantastic. Uh, and I like what you said, Brad, it comes down to like intent and context. So I, I agree with Tarantino. I, I think he should now, (laughs) I don't want to say that everybody should deserve the right to say whatever they want and write whatever they want. Look at, at some point, if it is doing harm, um, to somebody else, because your intent is harmful and the context is, is in such a way that you're going to create harm. No, you, you shouldn't be able to do that. 
But if you are trying to tell a story or a narrative and your intent and context are coming to, you know, from a good place and it serves the purpose of the narrative, do it. No, you're going to get some flack from Spike Lee or somebody else. But I think it kind of comes down to take a step back and look at what the artist is doing. And if the artist is creating it in such a way that it serves the purpose of the story and it's making a statement that um, shines a light on something that we should be talking about, I'm all for it. I don't care what um, nationality, creed, race, religion, whatever the person that is putting that together, as long as the content um, kind of fits the bill of, of the intent and the context of it. I think I think too many people lose sight of that. That's why Hollywood is very much like, oh, we can't talk about this. Oh, we can't use that. We can't. It's like, dude, we have to talk. If we don't talk about it, people yeah. are going to forget about it and people are going to think it's okay. And uh, we actually do more damage by not just sort of addressing it head on to some degree. I mean, let's take Pulp Fiction, for example. I think I think the Jimmy situation segment of that story is one of the most memorable because of the way it goes down. And I, I can see where that one would be very controversial. I mean, you have Tarantino in the scene saying these things across from a black person. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it goes back to like, I think there's a mutual understanding that this is storytelling and we're not who we are on screen. We are characters mm-hmm. that are to be portrayed. So, and, and, it's hard because as a fan of Pulp Fiction, as a fan of Tarantino, I love that scene with him and Jules in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. I hate that it that it's that it's said the way it's said, but it is very memorable and you don't forget that shit when it's over. You know what I mean? Like But I think that I think that's part of the edge to it. Like I think it's said that way to make you feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. because that is sort of the intent of that character in how they're talking to the other character. Right. Like, I, I, think well, I, I think I read somewhere like he wanted to be Jimmy because he didn't want anyone else to have to say that. So like he <laughs> yeah. played Jimmy essentially because he's like, eh. like, like Taika Waititi didn't want anyone else to play Hitler. He's like, why would I ask anyone else to play Hitler? I'll do it yeah. for Jojo Rabbit. So <laughs> that makes sense. Um, we touched on this a little bit. I mean, Tony Scott as a director, especially in this film, uh, the, the note I wrote is he is really good at being an Americanized John Woo to a certain degree. Um, he's good at the bullet ballet stuff, even, you know, pigeons in the air. Um, I, I think people were discovering John Woo in Hollywood at this time and, and trying to replicate it, you know, before John Woo was coming over and doing John Woo stuff. The, f- the feathers at the very end where the feathers are coming down out of the, the, uh, the couch. I was like, yeah, that's very John Woo. Yeah. And I, I think it looks good. I think if you're, if you're going to have a director copy John Woo, I'm cool with Tony Scott doing it. I, I think it looks Absolutely. good. I mean, yeah, for sure. Um, I think this movie, I, we said it before, this movie looks fantastic. It's shot fantastically the direction is amazing that standoff at the end is is really cool because you have like what like maybe four groups of people and then the camera's moving around and you always have spatial awareness and stuff it's it's shot really well i mean i feel like i feel like around this era of tony scott films you know i i feel like they could all exist in the same universe i feel like what's going on in beverly hills cop 2 could be going on simultaneously the same time as what's happening in true romance could be going on at the same time as what's happening in the last boy scout, because it all looks like the same world. Like he just has a very particular visual look in that era. I agree. I, I, 
I want to, I want to think in my head that Tom, Tom Cruise is flying overhead while all that stuff is going down <laughs> in his jets. I'm cool with that. Uh, what other notes do you guys have? I, I, I feel like I drove a lot of our discussion just off the questions that Cameron and I kind of went back and forth, but uh, what, what notes do you have about it that you want to share? I, w- I was just kind of surprised at how well it, it held up visually. Um, you know, cause we're getting to the point where this is almost 30 years old and you, oh, you look wow. back on it Gosh, and you're like, you're I know right. scary thought. And it's like, <laughs> no, uh, no, no, listen guys, I just talked about alien, which is 43 years <laughs> old. Yeah. Okay? Feeling old. And that, that made a dude feel freaking old. Okay. Like yeah. I'm talking about a movie that came out before I was born, just like somebody was talking about, I, I don't know, like whatever movies came out in the forties, you know what I mean? Damn. Like, that's Citizen Kane. Weird. Citizen Kane. Yep. yep. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I, I think it looks looks amazing. And if you can, and, and you're in that ecosystem of 4K, I think getting this on 4K does this movie justice. I agree. I, uh, <laughs> when we were talking about uh, Region B releases and whatnot earlier, that made me think of like that's when you know you've turned a new leaf as a film. <laughs> Is when you buy a region free player mm-hmm. so you can get movies that you can't get in America because you want to watch them so bad. Yeah. Like, okay. Here's the, here's the question I have. Uh, I, I, do, do we all have region free players? Is that, a oh, given? yes, I yes, do. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. So <laughs> how many times have you bought a film going, Oh, well the region B I need to own that. Cause it's, it's got all these special features or that's the cut. But then two, three years later, it ends up on a region a and like Sony's going to release it now and it has the same stuff on it, but it's region a versus region B. Do you, do you buy a hundred percent of literally a hundred percent? Yeah. I, I, with me, I think it was like, I wanted the rec films, the, the zombie films. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted those films. And I think the first one was on a region, a, a Blu-ray, but the rest of the movies were all region locked for another region. And I uh, wanted them so bad that I I spent the money and I bought the region free player so I could get the region B and the region C of of rec two, uh, rec three and rec four. So like, yeah, I mean, when you want to watch a movie and you want to watch it in the best way possible, like if that's your only option, I guess that's the way we're going now. Uh, I, I love that all these other like over the overseas releases are coming out off of Arrow and whatnot. That the four Ks are region are, are region free. Yeah. yeah, 4Ks are reason free. Yep. Yeah. So at least I can get a 4K version of True Romance and watch it because I don't have limitations like I would with a Blu-ray player. Now you're playing shipping, which is another thing. <laughs> oh yeah, that's through the nose lately. Uh, okay, well, I think it's time for the question. We've had a really good discussion on True Romance. I'm gonna I'm gonna start with you, Josh. We always start with the guest. So 1993's True Romance when it came out in the theaters. It bombed like nobody saw it except for like the cool kids. Right. But now we had a chance to go back and revisit it and talk about it in the context of 2022. So the question I have for you is, is Ridley Scott's film, true romance. Is it a bomb? Well, Ridley Scott didn't direct true romance. Oh, sorry. Tony Scott Scott. (laughs) got that wrong. Didn't I? Yeah. I still still got, Uh, what is it? The last duel on my mind, (laughs) but I know this isn't a bomb. This is a movie that was made before it's time. It, uh, it was, it was again, like we've talked about this entire show. This was, this was kind of the birth of Tarantino in Hollywood. And this would, sh- this would show us where we're going to go at the time. This movie came out. I don't think people were ready for 
the kind of movie it was, you know, or, you know, Tony Scott was putting out a lot of stuff at this time. And a lot of it, like we've been talking about, looked the same too. So I think it could have been easy for this film to get lost in all of those good films that were coming out at that point too. But um, this is a, an absolutely entertaining road movie. It has everything I love about what I love about Tarantino and Tony Scott and just that kinetic sort of action feel towards the end of it with the dialogue and, and conversations between people and Tarantino movies, along with some good brutality. I mean, we didn't even talk about really the scene between uh, Patricia Arquette and uh, uh, James Gandolfini, but, and I mean, that's another thing. Like, I think this movie takes turns to some very, very violent places that people probably weren't expecting when they saw it and probably turned them off. Maybe people go, Oh, I, I, you know, at that time it's all word of mouth. So it's people telling their friends, Oh, I, I tried to watch that true romance movie and it's, it's super bloody. I don't understand what's going on. I would, I would stay away from that one where now we thrive on just how much, just how fucked up a movie can get sometimes. At least I know I do. So it's a good point. What about you, Brad? This was your pick. You got to revisit true romance. Did it still hold up? Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely not a bomb. I think this is one of those things and Josh kind of hinted at it. Like if this comes out two years later in like 1995, so Reservoir Dogs is 92, Pulp Fiction's 94, True Romance, like if it's 95, it makes over $100 million. Like it, it's just because <laughs> really? people are like, oh, the guy who wrote Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs wrote this movie and it's directed yeah. by Tony Scott. Oh, this is going to be the biggest thing we've ever seen. Um, it's just timing. Um, and unfortunately, this one kind of gets lost, even with me as someone who adores Tarantino. It's like, this one's kind of on the latter end of stuff that I watch from, from him. Um, and I don't know why that is, because uh, it's probably because it's not directed by him. But right. you know, Tony Scott directs the hell out of this thing. So um, we definitely need to have more people check this out, because it's really good. And I, I, the characters are like, just like, bare none, like some of the best out there. Well, like I said, I mean, it, it, this movie itself is finding its way into pop culture now, because like I said, there's a, a, an absolute spot on reference to it in a more recent teen drama show on HBO. Do they so, have sex in a phone booth? Well, phone books don't exist anymore, but <laughs> they have a lot of damn sex in that show. <laughs> sure they do. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there is a direct reference to this movie in that show. And that's, that's kind of, you know, when I was watching euphoria, it sort of struck me. It's like, they're referencing the movies that I grew up watching now. And it's, it's kind of weird. I'm not, I'm not watching Tarantino reference movies that he watched as a kid. Now I'm watching people referencing my Tarantino movies and my Tony Scott movies, things like that. So, yeah, I mean, I think this thing's definitely carving a, a, a space for itself in pop culture. I like it. I, th- I think it's really good. It's definitely not a bomb. Uh, it dances around greatness, maybe flirts with it a little bit. Uh, again, I'll go back to my to my earlier comment. I think there are elements of it that don't gel together. And I don't know if it's Ridley Scott's direction um, takes it to, to a place where I think it's it isn't gelling with the script or the scene you know that has been presented. Um, and, and I do have a couple of problems, whereas I, I do think some of the performances outshine Clarence and, and Alabama, and I don't know if that's intentional, but I, I don't know. I've always, I've always liked true romance, but I've always walked away from true romance. And, and even this go around, it's a, man, there, there are some aspects I think are brilliant, like this whole, I think Clarence is acting out his Sonny Chiba fantasy and, 
And that whole aspect of the script is really fascinating to me. And then there are other aspects where I think um, the the parts of it outshine it um, as a whole cohesive story. So um, I, I don't know. I, I really like it, but I also kind of feel there, there are times when I watch it and I go, was did Warner Brothers or Tony Scott go dumpster diving behind Tarantino's uh, house and like take napkins and go, this is some great dialogue and this is good. And how do we put this all together in a story? And, and to me, I almost feel like that's what true romance is. It's these parts of a Tarantino film that didn't make it into his movie. They took it and put it around this structure of a road film. That's kind of what it feels like. And it's the Tarantino, it it's the B side. It's the Tarantino B side. It's the Tarantino yeah. B side, and I think it's really good. I mean, let's face it: a Tarantino B side will put uh, to shame probably ninety percent of the directors out there. Yeah, it's the yellow light better of uh, B sides. We get it. Yeah, I, and you know nobody writes a script like Tarantino. He he's he's one of the best screenwriters of all time. I I think everybody. If you don't agree with that. I would take a step back and go, I don't know if you truly understand film at this point. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing. You have to go back and look at it, too. Like, back when this came out, Tarantino was a nobody. Yeah. So the fact that Tarantino wrote this didn't mean shit to anyone. Mm. But then five years later, you know, you've got Pulp Fiction out making a killing, doing what an independent film has never done, basically. And now that's like, oh, holy shit, did you see that Quentin Tarantino wrote True Romance? We need to go back and watch that, you know? That's, you know, again, I think it's a victim of being lost in between some things where like he was breaking into Hollywood with his career and where movies were at at the time. I, I agree. Totally. I, I wish, um, I don't know. I, I kind of like that analogy you picked out, Brad, is that if this had come out maybe after Pulp Fiction a couple of years or if Tarantino had been a bigger name, this thing really would have taken off. And, and I don't know if it hit a hundred million, but it would have been a significant uh, financial success. I do like the fact that this movie shows up on so many lists. Um, when people are talking about films of the nineties or, you know, crime films, et cetera. I mean, this is always in the discussion and especially when you're talking about Tony Scott as a filmmaker, I think everybody, when they talk about Tony Scott's list, it's, you know, Top Gun obviously is number one. That's, that's just a given, but a, a close number two, I think is true romance. Um, always in the discussion, but yeah, I, I had, I had fun rewatching this and, and folks, if, if you like 4k, if you want to see your, your TV really shine, this is, this is one of those movies, man. It, it looks gorgeous for, a, for a movie from the nineties, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, Let's let's talk about what we're going to talk about next week. It's my pick, right? It is your pick. All right. Well, we are going to do a listener request. So this came in a few weeks ago and uh, was so it like the second or third time. Yeah. So um, and I'll have to go back through the emails. I, I think it, I'm going to be wrong. I'm going to say the name and I'm probably wrong, but I think Chris had recommended this one. I think so. Yes. Okay. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of this particular author and a lot of movies have been made from his work and here's a film. It's going to be a first time watch for me. So I'm super excited, but guess what? I've owned it and it's been sitting on the two watch pile for, I don't it's know, actually how many from years. Ben. From oh, ben. from Ben. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. It's from Ben. Sorry, Ben. Uh, we're going to talk about a scanner darkly, which is based on uh, Philip K Dick material. So I'm super excited about that. 
You ever seen that movie, Josh? I saw it years ago when I lived in Virginia and uh, haven't revisited it since. I would love to revisit it to see what I think of it now. I don't remember walking away from it, liking it very much when I saw it the first time, but my film taste has definitely changed since then. So that's kind of mine too. I remember getting this on a disc from Netflix, like as soon as it came out and I was probably too dumb at that point in time to really appreciate it. So I'm really curious to go back. Well, I, I think anything based on Philip K Dick material should be interesting and um, we may revisit that list of movies that have been based on his short stories or novels. And for those of playing along, I mean, Philip K. Dick, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Hence Blade Runner, right? I mean, one of the most influential sci-fi films of all time. And so next week, Brad, this should be right in your wheelhouse, right? It should be, yeah. Well, we'll see, you know, two weeks in a row, I get to talk about things I, I love the most, so. Yes. So, and, and this is a great example. I mean, we, we listen to people who listen to the podcast and, and we thought this was a great pick. Ben obviously is one of the OGs. I think he's been listening from day one. And so he asked for this film. We're throwing it in there. Speaking of feedback and, and listeners, we got, uh, I, we got a lot of great feedback from predator Two. Thank you for everybody, um, writing in and sharing their thoughts. I wanted to share one from Michael he wrote in and said, I like Predator 2, but it sacrifices the suspense of the original in favor of nonstop action. So he has a different take on this one, right? Mm, okay. He says, I do remember reading an interview with Stephen Hopkins around the time of its release, and he mentioned that they barely finished optical effects in time for the film's release. And I do get the impression that the film needed more editing. I'd rank this third behind the first film and Predator's nonetheless great coverage of predator to keep up the excellent work. Yeah. I mean, I, I could see that I could, I could see if you miss the suspense of the first one, the second one might be a little jarring for you. Um, and it does come back in predators a little bit more. Um, so yeah. So if that's, if the suspense is the part you like the most predators is probably not there. Predator two is not going to be your favorite. Yeah, I agree. And, and I find it so interesting how many people, what I what I liked about Predator Two is I don't think and I don't think anybody told us that it was an actual stinker. I think everybody would take it like Michael and say probably didn't love it as much as you guys, but I still liked it. It just would fall here. Um, and man, I, I I don't know. I I will say what I said on the last show. The more I watch Predator, the more I'm like, yeah, I need to stick in Predator Two right now because. That is a great combination. That that's a great double view. Yep. What do you what do you think about Predator Two, Josh? Are you a fan? I am a fan, and I, I love that episode as well. I, it was a great great companion to get me to work that day. And uh, I, I wrote you guys after I got done with it. Told you I love that episode. But yeah, I mean Predator is Predator is probably right behind Die Hard with action movies for me. Uh, you couldn't do any wrong with Schwarzenegger at that time in my life. So I love Predator and. I can absolutely. I actually kind of really feel the same way that that listener did. Um, I think it sacrifices the tension for more action, and I, that's probably why I, I like it like I do. I mean, if I want the tension, I've got the first one. If I want the action, I've got the second one. It's alien. It's alien aliens essentially. Yeah, I mean, and we just talked about Alien, and on that episode, um, I mentioned that I saw Aliens before the original, and. I love that movie because it's so filled with action, but I love alien because it's so tense and it's just a horror movie in space. So 
I tend to like when when there is a little bit of a a genre differential between movies like that. I agree. It's a good comparison. Well, speaking of VHS Files podcasts, I mean, you you want to talk a little bit about what you guys have done so far. So listen, folks, if if you are looking for another film podcast or looking for another podcast to just hang out with a great group of people, you have to download VHS Files podcast. But Josh, what have you guys been up to? Well, it's uh, it's the month of March. We're doing uh, movies that revolve around the color green, or at least that we associate with the color green. So we just talked about Alien. That episode's out now. Uh, we talked about our top four green movies, so movies that we associate with the color green. And we have a nice little conversation about like where our minds are with movies and how we associate color to movies and stuff like that. So that'll be coming out this Friday. And then uh, we're finishing up the month with... Uh, with a little bit of a lucky charm of a movie. And then uh, we're talking about green room at the end of the month, going to be a more modern movie, but a movie that we all pretty much have a pretty big liking for. So Mm. we decided we were going to show it some love during green month and talk about it because uh, it's also a 24 movie and we've been doing a lot of giveaways. So I kind of want to promote that here. Like we're giving away digital codes on our, uh, on our YouTube channel uh, through our podcast. So if you, are a fan of digital movies. We're giving away lots of digital codes and we are giving away a physical copy of lamb a 24s lamb at the end of the month at the, um, for the green room episode, we're actually going to be giving away a copy of lamb on Blu-ray. So if you would like to enter for a chance to win, check out our podcast, the VHS files podcast on uh, YouTube, anywhere you listen to podcasts, you can hear us. And we talk about older movies. We're starting to talk about newer movies, but uh, yeah, check us out. We're also on YouTube. That's that. There you go. Awesome. Great podcast. And they give you free stuff. What more can you ask for, right? Well, I mean, the podcast is free as well, Troy. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, it's a free yeah. podcast and you get free stuff. Free stuff. Yeah. I'm not Can't I'm not into me. advertising. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can't even say last names right. A couple other podcasts you should check out. The Backlook Cinema Podcast. Um, we, we might try and get them on here. Um, I, th- I think we're working through that, right, Brad? Yeah, we got something coming up. We got something cooking. Okay. Uh, also check out the Mixtape Podcast. It's another great podcast. They're, they're kind of all over the place with pop culture. If you really, I'll tell you what, my favorite thing about Mixtape Podcast is going back and listening to their episodes that have to deal with um, music. So they do film, music, pop culture in general, but their music stuff's really good. Hey, look, if you like Predator 2, you've got to check out the iron sequel. So James is a fantastic podcast over there. And of course you must listen to the gentleman's guide to midnight cinema with our good friends, Sammy and will, uh, this week, I think they did silent running. If I remember correctly, they did. Yes. Which thank you guys for reviewing a film that I already own because, um, I feel like every time they recommend something, I got to go back and watch it that week. I, I love those guys. But I'm really happy that they're, you know, lately been picking stuff that I own or is on Netflix. So <laughs> um, uh, my my bank account really thanks you this week. <laughs> what else, Brad? Uh, if anybody else wants to send a recommendation and um, pick one of our films, how do they do that? Yeah, that's notabombpod at gmail.com. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also go to notabombpodcast.com and hit the contact us button. And you can leave us uh, a suggestion or comment there. Awesome. Well, we've got a lot of good films coming up. We're kind of filling out the schedule for the next few, I don't know, months. Months, and, yes. 
it looks it looks pretty exciting. So uh, I'm excited about we'll getting, keep we'll keep doing it. <laughs> we're going to keep doing it. But I'm excited about next week because I get excited about a film that's recommended that I haven't seen. And I've been I don't know, I've been circling uh, a scanner darkly for a while, but I've never heard resounding like, oh, my gosh, that movie's amazing. So it just kind of stayed at the bottom of the to watch pile. Uh, but Hey, that's the cool thing about doing a podcast, right? You get to watch all these films that you should have seen. And now you have an excuse to make sure you watch them. Well, that, Oh, that, that also puts another point in my head there, Troy. I'd like to, I'd like to promote something else if I can. Of course. Uh, I also do a little show called for new eyes only with our friend, Nathan Simmons. Um, and it's all about me watching the bond movies for the very first time. So if you're a bond fan and you want to hear a bond noob, and his in, his impressions of these movies for a first watch. Check us out there. We're also all all of those episodes are with the VHS Files uh, podcast page on YouTube and in our feed on, on wherever you get your podcast. So those will show up there. But I just wanted to say, if you like Bond and you want to hear somebody who's never seen Bond movies talk about them, there you go. It's a great. This show. is like the third one, third or fourth. Uh, we are about to release our episode on Thunderball, which is yep. the fourth, fourth in the series. Yep. Awesome. Another great show. Another great show. Well, Brad, what else? Are, are we done? Are we good? We are. We are done. All right. Well, listen, folks, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening. I hope you're having an awesome day. Please play along. Go out. Find yourself a copy of A Scanner Darkly. Watch it and share your thoughts with us. Send us an email. You know, contact us on social media because we'd love to hear what you think about that film. And we will catch you next week. Adios. You're so cool. Cool.